Kat. And I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Kat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to episode 164, She Needs Backup. This week we're discussing season 2, episode 5 of Battlestar Galactica, The Farm, and season 6, episode 7 of Buffy, Once More with Feeling. As always, we suggest you watch the episodes before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. So, uh, BSG. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I, I don't think I asked you, actually, did you have any production notes for this one? Uh, I don't think so, really. Okay. No. Um, well, fine. Uh, <laughs> the... <laughs> Sorry to disappoint, but... The one thing that um, I think we noted in our last episode um, is, like, that we didn't get any, like, Starbuck or Caprica stuff, right? Was that last episode, or was that... Am I wrong in that? Uh, I'm trying to remember. It was like, not the last episode. It was the one before that, I think. Because oh, the last okay. one was Resistance, so we met Sam and Oh, right, the, that, right, right, right. But okay. it was the week before that so I never, think there was, like, a, a gap in between. Right, because that was when, they're when, like on when the road, Chief was I guess. on Cobol yeah. with... That's when Crash Down died and everything. Yeah. Right? All right. So I'm completely wrong. Really starting off on a good foot. No production <laughs> notes. Can't even remember what happened last episode. Let's move on. Um, so I wanted to, I mean, this, you know, again, we've got like different groups on different planets or well, one on a planet and one with the fleet. So mm-hmm. kind of easy to split it up that way and talking about it. So um, figured we should start with Caprica. I don't, it feels like they spend more time with the Caprica group. Um whether I feel like that's probably like the the a plot. Yeah, you know, like this is really a Starbuck episode. I think. Right. Um, right. Yeah, in terms of screen time, I'm not sure how it divides up, but it definitely feels like that's the significant, you know, portion of the episode. I guess. So, um, and I feel like we'll, we can just like sort of follow Starbuck through most of it. Um, mm-hmm. Although there might be one or two other things to say about other people. So. Starting off, we got Starbuck waking up in the same room there with uh with Anders. Mm-hmm. And uh seems like seems like something's going on there. After oh, yeah. after the very uh rousing, shall we say, game of pyramid that we had last episode. Oh right. So yeah. I should remember that, if nothing else. <laughs> um right. the the very sexually charged and sweaty game of pyramid. Right. Um and, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, sort of a, I mean, sort of an interesting little scene just to see the two of them because, like, we don't really know Sam that well mm-hmm. yet. So you do kind of get trapped into thinking, like, oh, he actually is, like, upset that Starbucks leaving. And then he kind of laughs at it. But then you're like, well, maybe is, is he just, like, sort of compensating for, mm-hmm. you know, maybe not Starbucks not responding the way he hoped she would or so i don't know like we we don't know him that well yet is basically what I'm, I'm trying to get at sure um kind of seeing that they're sort of playful but sort of also irritating each other at the same time which isn't yeah. very different from the pyramid game still um, sure like that kind of competitiveness yeah. is part of it and it's like it it kind of almost like I feel like there's some similarity and this is, I guess we don't 
like we don't know Sam well, like you said, but also this is how we get to know him is like, you know, this is one of the first, like, I feel like significant scenes that he has. And Mm -hmm. it's sort of like, it almost reminds me of the kind of, uh, again, competitive teasing, you know, slightly mean kind of banter that like, you know, Kara has with Lee, but then it also like the fact that the way, which I hadn't really thought about, but you saying those things made me think that, you know, the way that Sam pretends to be kind of offended and then it's just, oh, he's just teasing, lighten up, it's the end of the world. Like, I don't think like Lee would say that. Like, it, like the, there's something more, um, not more charged, but more, I guess, because there's more complicated history with, you know, mm. Kara and Lee. You feel like when they tease each other, there's also some real hurt and real feeling behind it whereas here she's all prepared to be apologetic that she's you know uh hurt his feelings and then ah oh, he's just kidding you know um you know it's the end of the world but lighten up that kind of like nonchalance i feel like is different mm. um you know like sure uh it, it, so there's something kind of reminiscent of that relationship but also very different too like it seems like it's going to go in that direction and then because sam is a different kind of person it sort of takes a different sort of tone i guess yeah um but there is like there is that annoyance between the two of them as well because you get like Mm -hmm. like i do think sam is in earnest when he says to starbuck to like stay and give them professional advice like sure you know like no really we can use you here and you could help us like actually make a difference um Mm -hmm. not that maybe they haven't been making a difference before but you know that she could be the difference between you know them just sort of being a fly in the ointment or Mm -hmm. actually hitting back hard against the Cylons and um Starbucks advice, of course, is run away because you're going to lose. <laughs> right. Right. Um, well, and each of them, like, you know, okay, we have more history with Starbucks, so we kind of are more on her side by default, I think. But, like, each of them has been fighting the good fight in these separate corners without the knowledge of the other. So you get that thing of each of them kind of sees their own battleground as the most important one and like like well you guys are just down here on the ground fighting you know the long defeat while we're the ones out there looking for earth like important you know like this is the real future but like from sam's point of view it's like well you're all just out there wandering aimlessly in space and we're the ones down here on the ground actually trying to like like take back our planet and have a war like where it's actually important right so there's like a difference there of each of them kind of doesn't, I, I think at the end, obviously to, to kind of jump to the ending, it kind of reverses, like, you know, which is interesting. Like suddenly Starbuck wants to stay and, you know, fight and finish things here. Whereas Sam suddenly tells her, no, you have to take the arrow and go back to, you know, go back to your mission so they've kind of reversed but where they start out is each of them not really seeing the importance of what the other one 
has been doing all this time and kind of wishing the other one would just sort of give up and, you know, get realistic about where things are and everything. Sure. Sure. Um, so, yeah. So that, I mean, that said, like, Sam does go along and, and not just Sam, but you know, the rest of the sea bucks and presumably others from their base there, I forget what they call it. Um, you know, goes and makes this plan to get a heavy raider from the Cylon. So like whatever they end up doing with that, like they, they, you know, Sam at least seems ready to help out, mm -hmm. um, and the others. So, um, yeah, there's even, and I guess maybe it can kind of, it may, like, I don't know if we get a lot of exposition around it or anything, because it, it, it's like suddenly like, okay, here we are in the woods. We're on our way to like <laughs> attack the Cylons. And, yeah, you know, we don't really know the motive. I mean, we know Starbuck and Hilo's motivations to go back to the fleet. We don't really mm -hmm. know Sam and the rest of them. Maybe it's kind of like, okay, let's go do this thing. And, you know, we do have two tactical, you know, professionals here. So mm -hmm. we might actually be able to steal a raider and then we'll see what happens after that. <laughs> like, sure. like they could be taking a practical view of, all right, yeah, if we can get a raider, then like that, either way, that's not a bad thing. We can, we can figure out what we're using. Yeah. It we'll talk later. about later what the, like what the plan for the raider is. Right. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, and during that, which is interesting because it seems like during that scene, um, at first it seems like Sam is in charge, but then like Hilo's like, okay, so what's the plan? And then Starbucks like, oh, well, here's the plan. So it's kind of, it is kind of weird where you have like this sort of confused hierarchy. Like, like mm -hmm. you do get the sense that like Sam... I guess maybe he was the captain of the sea bucks or whatever. I don't know if we've been told that or not, or if I'm just assuming that, but like, yeah, I don't know. He, he seemed to be the one in charge. Yeah. You know, last episode anyway. And so now he still kind of is, but you know, again, it, you know, you have these two people who are actual military people and Hilo's deferring to Starbuck, which is interesting. Mm. Um, I don't, I mean, I think because they're the same rank, right? They're both mm -hmm. lieutenant. Mm -hmm. um, but maybe, maybe because Hilo is in more of a, like a, a you know, I, like uh, the Raptor isn't really a combat sure. vehicle. So maybe sure. from a tactical well, perspective, also... you know, he's he's more willing to kind of let Starbuck take the lead on that. Right. Well, and he's also like the, the, you know, the co-pilot on the route, like he's the support guy in the back doing like whatever it is that he does like on, you know, with the, you know, yeah. different equ equipment and things like he's not even, I mean, I'm sure he can pilot, but he's not like the pilot of the Raptor. So yeah, he's maybe a couple right. pegs down in terms of who's like calling the shots and everything. Well, and, and it seems like, the Viper pilots take precedence in terms of being a little bit more like 
you know, the ACE, you know, leaders and, you know, the, the Raptors are a little bit there for air support and that kind of thing. So, yeah. So there's that kind of deference there that he sort of, after months on his own, suddenly Hilo sort of will let Starbuck, you know, call the shots and everything. Um, And, you know, while we've already sort of compared Hilo's competence to crashdowns, They are kind of the same. I mean, they're pretty much the same position, though, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. So, right. Like, they do the same job. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. So maybe even though they're, you know, uh, even though Hilo and Starbuck have nominally the same rank, mm-hmm. there seems to be like a, within the rank, there seems to be sort of an internal pecking order. Yeah. Right. Well, and I mean, there's a difference of competence. So Hilo probably is like, maybe, I don't know whether he's better at that job than Crashdown is, but he's maybe more competent, like in the field, but also like, you know, there's more humility there too, you know, of Hilo's not out there trying to assert his ego over sure. Starbuck or, or even Anders, you know, who has no rank, you know, um, right. he kind of, you know, it seems like he can he's clearly, you know, capable of handling himself and taking care of himself and making decisions and being a leader, but also knows when to, you know, back off and let other people do that as well and doesn't seem to have a problem with it. So, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, I hadn't thought about that as him and Crashdown having pretty much the same job, but you do kind of see like, okay, these are two people in the same position that crash land on, you know, Cylon infested planets and they react very differently <laughs> to yeah. that situation. Well, I mean, I mean, and the situations are different. Situations too. are different because, and especially at the beginning, Hilo, it's just himself. He doesn't mm-hmm. have a, he's, he's, it's not really a command if you're on your right. own, you know, right. like, Versus Crashdown, who's suddenly responsible right. for six or seven or whatever number of people who are under him. Mm-hmm. Um, and not to say that, like, Hilo would have done as bad as Crashdown there, but, you know, it's a different set of pressures that are yes. involved. Yeah, there. yeah, definitely. Um, all right. So they go out on this raid, or they attempt to, but they get sort of attacked preliminarily preliminarily by Mm -hmm. the Cylons and uh, Starbuck gets shot. Yeah. So uh, that's bad. Um, Yeah, not good. And apparently nobody notices. Like they all, like Anders and Hilo and everyone run away. Um, So she's left and, and apparently captured. We don't actually see that. We just sort of see her whiting out and then yeah waking up later in the hospital right um or the presumed hospital yeah so uh and she's got like an iv and whatnot like you know typical like uh hospital type machines attached to her doesn't Mm -hmm. really know what's going on Mm -hmm. uh doctor comes in now i'm trying to remember we don't actually, do we find his name out right away? Does he say his name to her? Or do we only find it out when he's talking? I know Six uh-huh. calls him Simon, but I can't remember. 
he he does say it. I, he does I, say it. I missed it the first time around, but I tried to pay attention the second time. And she, he introduces himself as Simon. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, because I know, yeah. I know later, like, because she gives her name as Kara, mm. Kara Thrace, and then later she says, when he like calls her Starbuck or whatever, she's like, "Oh, I never told you my call sign." Right. And, right. Um, which, all right, like, fair enough, it advances the plot and whatnot, but mm -hmm. the whole cover story is that Anders brought her in and then died. Mm -hmm. So, like, it's not impossible that they could have learned her call name some other way. You know what I mean? Like, if, if it was actually sure. a friendly facility... That's right. a pretty flimsy excuse to stab a guy with a piece of broken mirror. Right. Right. I mean, now by that point, by that point, she's seen number six. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she no, has other I, data. But yeah, like as that, a single piece of evidence, it's not. And that's what I'm saying. Like, like, yeah, it advances the plot and like there's not like, yeah, she certainly has other reasons to distrust him. It right. just seems like an odd thing to like pick out to say to him, especially when you're about to kill him. Like, you know, it's that thing of just like, just kill him. Like, like why monologue at all? Like, just kill right. him. That's not satisfying. <laughs> I know, but. You have to have your, your, you know. But it's not satisfying to give an unsatisfying answer either. No, it's true. By definition. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, well, anyway. All right. I, yeah, I, so I couldn't remember if, if he said his <laughs> name up front initially. Um, and I didn't. Like it was already passed by the time I was watching it a second time. I'm like, ah, oh, well, I, eh. yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I forget where exactly, but somewhere in there. Um, um. So, I mean, I don't know that we need to go through like every like we know she's shot. Um, and you know, presumably she's being healed from there. Like you get the whole like. Oh, you're free to go at any time, but oh, I can't. You can't actually stand up, so you're kind of free, but not free. Yeah. Um, or we want you to think that you're free, but yeah, you're not you free. have the illusion of freedom. You know. Um, yeah. Um. Yeah. Well, actually, while I'm thinking of it, one uh, side note to um, the actor. Uh, wanted to point out Rick Worthy, who I feel like is one of those, what we call him again. So like, it's just one of those people of, sure. if you watch a lot of stuff, it's like, oh, that guy, you know, <laughs> like I've seen yeah. you and everything. Um, like he was, I mean, he's been in a bajillion things as I looked up on IMDb, but recently he had a pretty significant part in The Magicians, which was also on sci-fi. Um, and then I actually, for, uh, for free prime month, I binged The Man in the High Castle. Um, oh, on yeah. Amazon, yeah. on yeah. Amazon, and he's in that as well. So it's one of those things of suddenly, once you've seen them, he's just sort of in everything. So um, funny to you know have him in here, um, you know, as a new Cylon because he ends up not just being you know a doctor. He turns out you know. So the whole thing is you know Starbuck blacks out and wakes up and so the whole whatever it is middle or main section of the story is trying to figure out along with her you know 
is he a Cylon or not? Um, yeah. Um, so, yeah. I mean, and I feel like, too, like, uh, I mean, there's a couple interesting things. Certainly, um, I remember uh, the first time, I think I said I started BSG a couple times over the years. Um, and I remember whatever year it was that I first watched it. I remember this episode, like, sticking as one of the ones that really stuck in my brain. Mm. Um, just, like, the sheer creepiness of the whole. Like, sure. it's one of those things of, like, how dark and, and scary can we go in, you know, yeah. this length of time and everything. Yeah. Because um, it's, like... I'm going to make a statement that I can't think of it's true or not, but I feel like it's the first, I'm going to go with it. Um, I feel like it's the first time we've been like, we've had Cylon characters and we've even had like, we've had Cylons alone too. Like we've had the conversations between like number six and Doral sort of walking around and chatting mm. about life and things and everything. But like, sure. I feel like this is the first time where one of them is like, alone in enemy territory where like you're surrounded and you're in a space that's like controlled by you know the Cylons like and just yeah. that feeling of you're in this hospital and you just don't know if you can trust the person or not um and what might be like because it's not even until like more than halfway through the episode that she even like goes into the hallway so just a feeling right. of what's on the other side of the doors um, and like just the increasingly invasive nature of his like exams and everything, you mm -hmm. know, that we kind of go from, you know, fixing her, you know, bullet wound to having gynecological exams, you know, like it, it's just this yeah. sudden like, what the heck? Like it comes out of sort of nowhere, but it's treated as kind of matter of fact yeah. of like, Oh, suddenly this is what we're doing. And because it's your doctor, I guess you have to do it. And what else can she do? And suddenly, like, the conversation turns to babies and procreation and all this stuff. Right. And, just, and then talking kind of, about, like, cyst on her ovaries and, like. Right. Um, and right. And then suddenly there's a scar, a new scar, you know, right. where she doesn't know what it is or where how it got there and what they went in to do. And you have Which no way of right knowing. Right around the area of her reproductive organs that they've exactly. already been talking about. Yeah. Um, yeah. Plus the fact that uh, he can basically put her under anytime he wants, mm -hmm. you know, with with the IV drip that right. he's got going. So, right. um yeah, no, I I definitely agree. Like, there's, and I mean, I'm I'm sure there's probably many more implications and feelings, or different ones at least for women than men in watching something like sure. this too. Just you know, from a control perspective and and all of that as well. Like, it's telling that they don't. Ha I mean. Kara knows what six looks like and she knows what Sharon looks like, but it's telling mm -hmm. that they don't have like maybe a different woman Cylon be the mm -hmm. one to do this. Right. Like mm -hmm. we yeah. haven't seen them all yet, so we don't know how many there are and you right. know how, you know, what other 
models right. there may be, but there it could have been, you know, a different woman um, other than Sharon and Six, you know, and right. still sort of had the same ruse, and that would have had maybe different implications, and maybe would have mm -hmm. even put Starbuck in a different frame of mind, mm -hmm. and certainly us, I think, as right. Would viewers. she be more willing to trust, you know? A nice-looking woman who comes in and tries to take care of her and stuff. Or, or even a not-so-nice-looking woman. <laughs> like, you know, sure. one who looks like she actually might be a ragged nurse in a, you know, field right. hospital kind of thing. Right, right. Um, but yeah, yeah. Uh, who knows? Uh, that's all speculation, I guess. But I definitely, I definitely hear what you're saying, like the creepiness factor of it uh, is dialed up. It... I, I mean, obviously there, there's a lot of differences, but it, it makes me think of like misery. Mm, um, yeah. Yeah. You know, and that sort of thing where you're, yeah, you're trapped and, and wounded and unable to leave and mm -hmm. at the mercy of someone who you're not sure has your best interests and slowly become more and more sure doesn't have your best interests in <laughs> yeah. mind. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, no, that comparison hadn't struck me, but that's, that's absolutely right. Like you're, yeah. And, and not even like, you know, because they start out, both of those characters in both of those stories start out sort of hurt and unable to walk. Like the, the feeling of trappedness, like it increases because at first you're sort of trapped just by their own inability to leave. So again, there's that illusion of freedom of, oh, you could leave, but you're, you know, you, you got hurt. And so you have to stay here and I'll take care of you. And as their strength increases, then it becomes obvious that the conditions are, you're being manipulated to stay. And it's going to get more and more extreme until Kathy Bates, you know, breaks your ankles, that kind of thing. Um, or, or worse in the books. Or worse. <laughs> in the book. Anyway, uh, um, yeah. yeah, so Starbucks in a really pleasant place, then. a nice <laughs> little getaway, yeah, uh, kind of a retreat, if you will. Um, well, and so that reminds me on that topic. One thing I wanted to mention, too, was on this time, and I think this is the value of going through this, if there is a value to doing a podcast like this and going through things like in minute detail week after week. Um, Which we hope there is <laughs> some value in that. So my contribution to that this week is something I never noticed before, which is the kind of some parallels to uh, season one stuff that to me have a kind of like, this has happened before this will happen again vibe, you know, of, um, like just like in season one, we started out in kind of survival mode and then it kind of relaxed into the more, you know, weekly character-based explorations and everything. I feel like that's kind of what season two in a different way has done of, okay, there's the initial emergency of the attack on Adama and Ty being in charge and that all having been resolved. Mm -hmm. um, and now we're kind of transitioning and suddenly just like in season one we have you know a Kara centric episode where she's again separated from everybody you know she's on her own um and 
not only that, but in the other story, you know, in the with the Galactica and everything, the story starts to center around Kara being missing and what are we going to do about that? And are we going to leave or are we going to stay? And should we leave or should we stay? Um, so, you know, and and even in the Kara story, if I'm kind of mixing different episodes, you know, the fact that she's again kind of one-on-one, you know, singled out with a Cylon and talking about her abusive past and her destiny and all these things. It's like there's echoes of Leoben and all this too. Um, So it's like things, little things like that, like parallels to earlier episodes started to sort of, I don't know, become more noticeable, I think. Um, Which I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I don't know quite what to say about that yet. Although when Leoben or Simon or even Sharon then starts to talk about how she's special and has a destiny, it's like, well, she is the one who's always separated off on her own, you know? And Mm. like, you know, it kind of starts to seem like, okay, there's a pattern here of, you know, Starbuck being the one who's sort of, you know, stranded and having to sort of make her way back to the group and everything. Um, and jumping ahead to when she's back with the group uh, and we get Sharon saying, you know, they know who you are, you know, basically mm-hmm. to her. Like, like yeah, like Starbuck is a marked person and not just like they want her dead, but like there's something special about her. Even mm-hmm. even more so, like she's killed how many Cylons now at this point? But there's still apparently right. some value for her in for them to want to capture her alive, you know, regardless right. of how many Cylons she kills and and even what she finds out in doing so. Um, right. In fact, they seems to not want her dead at all. Like, right. you know, they, they find her and they patch her up and, you know, right. um, I mean, and then I like to then hurt the question of what else might she be destined for is separate from just the normal, any women with re- reproductive abilities are, you know, worth, you know, saving at this point for the Cylons, you know, cause that's kind of, what we end up finding out is this idea of the farm, um, mm-hmm. you know, that they have these sort of little. As if, the, as if the creep factor isn't high enough already. It's like, well, yeah, we'll just go up to 11 here. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, there's like a real like horror movie quality to this. Like it doesn't ever get super like gory or anything, but like well, you mentioned misery. Another thing it sort of, which I don't even know if I ever saw these movies, but just in concept, it also kind of, there's something like hostile about it. Like, like you could do like a really creepy, like, you know, hostily torture porn version of this episode, I think, where it's just, sure you're just cut off and, you know, in the hands of, you know, people who are going to just, you know, do whatever they want with you, that kind of thing. Um, I was just thinking, it's not really a Kevin in the Woods episode because it's, mm-hmm. it's, uh, I mean, she is cut off from mm-hmm. people, but like, it's like, it's more like you're trapped in the same 
building with your right. like it's a different different thing right uh, anyway um yeah so we jumped around a bit and i mean that's partly my fault because i jumped ahead um oh. <laughs> which makes it all my fault because i'm the one who jumped ahead um uh, but uh so yeah like coming back to like with Kara and Starbuck and Simon um you get like you mentioned the conversation about um you know the children and stuff and so there's also the conversation that uh he has with her I don't know if conversation is the right word sort of accusations in a way Hmm. about her child abuse (laughs) that is about her being abused as a child like it comes across almost as accusational Mm-hmm. Um, on Simon's part, and I like in it. I was thinking through the second time when I was watching it that um, it actually reminds me quite a bit of the conversation that the conversation that she has with Leo Ben, like because he's also like sort of on the very psychological side mm-hmm. of things, right? But whereas I get that, like, like I feel like Leo Ben's more like the bar stool philosopher or psychologist or whatever you want to call him. Like, Mm -hmm. like he's the guy at the counter that you talk to just because he happens to be nearby. Whereas Simon's the very clinical, like, Mm -hmm. is it even necessary to bring up the fact that like all her, you know, finger bones were broken when she was young? Like what, what purpose does that have in healing her now? Right. Um, even if you think that she might have uh, psychological issues that need to be worked through, is is now the time to be doing that? Well, of course, we know he's a Cylon, so, you know, he's toying with her or testing her or a little of both. <laughs> like, not really mm-hmm. sure what. But, like, that's also, like, a clue to her. Like, like what's, what's the value in this as, like, a therapeutic conversation? Mm-hmm. Which... Right. The answer is there isn't really like right. he's not trying to provide therapy, you know, right. turn, as it turns out. So, um, but yeah, like just again, that thing of like, like as if the physical problems aren't bad enough, like, like get her thinking in a direction of, you know, where she's weak and, you know, when she was a kid, she was abused and, and kind of dredging that all up, which you know, could, I suppose, have the effect of keeping her docile or keeping her, you know, from trying to, you know, act out against them. Yeah. It doesn't work, but, you know. Right, right. No, but, yeah, you're right that it's it does have an accusatory tone. That Like, you do get the sense of that kind of... Um, which is annoying when, especially when it's unsolicited, is that thing of he's trying to like psychoanalyze her, you know, of, yeah. of let me, let me, how does your, how do your childhood, you know, issues and problems, um, you know, how have they psychically affected you and ne- in negative ways? And I mean, of course, that seems obvious, but like, like I'll use it to explain why you don't want to have children and you know Mm. and 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 that kind of guilt inducing thing of you know this is your your 
best asset and, you know, you should be, you know, fruitful for the good of your, the survival of your species. And if you don't want to, then here, let me tell you how that's wrong, because here's all the terrible things that happened to you when you were a kid, you know, which may or may not be true, but it certainly doesn't seem like um, a sensitive or healthy approach to dealing with that kind of trauma. Yeah. Um, Well, and it's also that sort of clinical know-it-all. That detachment. Aspect of it, of like, once oh, I point you this don't... out to you, you're going to thank me. You, All yeah. your problems will be solved, you know? <laughs> yeah, and okay, you don't want to get, want to have kids. Oh, it must be because you were abused when you were a child. Right. Which, right. I mean, even if that's the case, like, so what? It's still her choice, ultimately, right. or right. should be. Right. Um, you know, so there's there's no... Like, that shouldn't matter, like, if it if that's the reason or if it's not the reason. Yeah. Right. Which, you know, I mean, so, I mean, I think we should talk about the, the kind of Cylon, like whole baby plan and everything too. But like, that's certainly like a relatable thing. Like, you know, I just this, like in the past week, I saw somebody share an article about how, I don't even remember the figures of, you know, I, you know, whether the article was overblowing the issue or whatever, but, um, or if they were accurate, but, you know, it was a kind of thing of there's an emergency in the U S because, you know, the, the birth rate is at its lowest point in recorded history and kind of saying, you know, who can we blame? It's people who aren't having enough babies young, you know, and it's, you know, uh, you know, the issue of, okay, yes, there's issues of, of, you know, um, you know, overblown amount of boomers, you know, and who right. had few kids and then the birth rate is decreased even more. And, but, you know, there was this kind of, uh, attitude of rather than these are the facts as they are, there was a sense of, well, you know, the young generation is doing it wrong because they're choosing, you know, to not have children or they're having it later or they're only having one as opposed to six or, you know, whatever. Um, sure. You know, and it was that kind of thing of if you're reading it, you know, um, and you're someone like me who doesn't have kids, there's suddenly this thing of am I being accused by this art? Like, am I part of a problem here? You know, (laughs) you're being very unpatriotic cat. Yeah. Like, but there's that thing of like the survival of your country or your species is dependent on you, you and you and you alone. If you go out and, you know, um, you know, which uh, it's just, that's an attitude which exists, you know, in the world, like that made me, uh, you know, look at Simon's speech, not differently, but it, it reminded me that that's not, a, you know, a, an uncommon sort of sentiment, well, you know, in the world. And let's not forget, Rosalind herself was someone who said, you know, we need to start having babies. Like, yeah, like, it's, yeah. it's not, and you know, so it's, yeah. all of this is sort of in the, you know, misogynistic, you know, power hungry or power mad 
Simon, you know, to mm-hmm. Starbuck. But like, yeah, even right. even Rosalind is, is yeah. you know concerned about birth rate and mm-hmm. number of people who are dying each day and whatnot. So, um, no, and I don't think that um, dismisses what might be the real facts you know like okay the fact is that you know in the real world there's uh you know the the number of elderly greatly outweigh the number of you know young people and that's a reality you know so you know the the you know there's an aspect of truth to it but there's also you know i think certainly coming from simon and from you know, some others that, that sense of, you know, accusation, I guess. Yeah. Um, well, they, so, and I think too, like, I don't mean to imply that Rosalind takes the same approach to it because like certainly sure. hers is more like, you know, again, like revisiting Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, mm-hmm. she's saying, let's, let's give people the safety that they need so that they can start having kids again. Whereas, you know, Simon's coming at it from a, it's your duty and we're going to, yeah, you know, well, he doesn't say it, but the implication based on what Starbucks finds later is we're going to force you to do it. Yeah. Um, you know, if you don't on your own, um, and doing it on your own may not even be an option anyway. Um, right. So, yeah. Uh, so Starbuck escapes from her room the first time, finds Six and Simon talking, hastens back to her room as though nothing happens, says the thing about her not having told him her call sign and then stabs Simon in the neck, escapes again, finds a room full of women hooked up to machines, including... Um, I forget her name, but she's one of the Seabucks, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Who had been with Sam uh, right. the week before when they were, and it's it was. I, do you do you know her name? I'm sorry. I, uh, Sushan. Sushan. It's a weird name, but that's where that's her name. Um, Sushan. So, uh, Starbuck finds her, wants to rescue her, but she begs to be killed. She begs for euthanasia, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so Starbuck does so and ends up ruining, like, the, all the machinery, basically. Right. Um, which kills a lot more than just her. Right. Um, runs right. out. Right. And, and... Oh, sorry. I don't... I, do, I don't know. Do you agree? I kind of get this sense of, like... It's not just that they're hooked up to machines that might like imp- or would impregnate them, but they're also like kind of life support, like like in breaking right, the machinery. Right. They, like they can't they can't just get up and leave with her to be rescued. Like no, no, the no. only life is to stay hooked up, and so it's a choice of you know hooked up to the machines or death. Or There's like no yeah in no the the implication I get certainly is is that is that there was no saving her at that point. And that, right. and right. that rather than leaving her, you know, yeah. uh, 
right to, to continue become like this a baby machine and, and yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, that she would rather die and and that yes that by destroying the machine she's ba- Starbuck is basically killing all right. the women in that room and, or you know however many maybe hooked up who knows maybe it was hooked up to more than just the one room um, mm-hmm. so she flees there's a battle with some Cylons but lo and behold Sam and Hilo uh, with the help of Sharon, who happens to know where Starbuck is being kept, uh, come to the rescue and they uh, they get away. Yeah. Uh, anything else with the hospital stuff before we kind of close out with the end of uh, that? I don't think so, no. Um, um, I mean, just that what Sharon says about this isn't even necessarily and probably not the only one, you know, that there are, you know, so there's this sense of, again, getting our first kind of peek into the Cylon, like, plans, like wider plans just beyond the destruction of mankind, apparently, you know, destroying all of them is not the whole plan. Now there are further plans which include, you know, making babies of their own. And that means going out and, you know, starting up all these farms with all of these women, you know, and yeah. however, I mean, probably across Caprica and across all the other planets as well. Um, if there right. are survivors on other planets, you know, they probably have some of these, you know, farms set up and everything. Right. Um, so it's this, which is kind of shifting over to the ending of, their story that's what changes starbucks attitude about oh it's not just a feudal fight going on down here on caprica there's actually important work for a resistance to do and it kind of motivates her to say screw the arrow let's stay and blow up all the farms you know (laughs) right um so so with that though what changes sam's mind do you think Hmm. That's a good question. I don't know. I mean, we don't get a lot of time with them. Yeah. I mean... I mean, the only thing that comes to mind is what Sharon repeats, which we've heard Simon and Leoben say about Kara's sort of special destiny and everything. Sure. Um, so there could just be a sense of um, her being, you know, kind of delivered out of that situation for a reason, you mm. know? Um, you know, or even just it's easy to take it for granted and then when you almost lose somebody, realize oh, I was going to keep her here, but here is very dangerous. And actually maybe she should get out while the getting's good and do what she came here to do. Because if she stays, you know, sure, we well, almost lost her. So I don't know. I'm speculating. So, I don't know if we really get it. And, and I don't know that I have a better answer than either of those either. But um, just sort of building off your last thing then, do you think it's similar to... Kilo letting Boomer go with the group. Hmm. 
I mean, he doesn't, sure. except that he doesn't really give up his seat for Boomer. He gives it up for, like, a kid or something, right? Like For Baltar. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's for Baltar. Even worse. Even worse. Um, that's right, it was for Baltar. So, <laughs> yeah. so like, um, it's oh, not really the poor, same. Poor Hilo. It's not really um, the same situation. No, but there is that, I think it has this a similar effect of, of self-sacrifice about it of um you have work to do elsewhere and i can't go with you now because for whatever there's like either there's not a seat or or i have to finish what i'm doing down here right but there's a sense of um i the opposite of buffy's i wish i could stay it's that i get a similar sense of i wish i could go but i can't um, sure. And it's your duty to go without me, you know. So yeah, there's. It's a similarly kind of, and they're even kind of shot the same way of big like heroic shots of Sam and Hilo watching, you know, uh, you know their their ladies fly off into the yeah. distance. Yeah. Now you know, like there's. It's a similar kind of, you know, uh, moment. I think. So yeah, I don't know if we get a real clear like turning point with Sam of like, oh now he's convinced of, you know, which I don't even know that he is convinced like that, you know, of that she has like, uh, you know, a destiny or even that the arrow is that important, but you know accepting that she has work to do elsewhere that is not the same as his at the very least seems like he comes to that sort of conclusion right yeah um whatever the case starbuck and hilo and sharon and sharon get on the heavy raider and mm -hmm. Get ready to uh, return to Capri or return to um, the fleet. Mm -hmm. Which, if we can turn to the fleet, mm -hmm. they will find when they return <laughs> that a third of it is gone. Yeah. Uh, but let's step back for a moment. Um, Adama is better. He returns to command now. He's back in the CIC. Big standing ovation. Mm -hmm. I have to admit, I mean, obviously I've seen this before, but yeah. like, like, again, I'm a little shocked at his reaction to what happened to Rosalind's leaving. Mm. One, like, did he really think she was just going to stay and sit in the brig, like, on her own? Like, I, apparently he did. Mm -hmm. But also, like figure he's had some time to reflect by now like yeah no he's like, kind of doubled like, down <laughs> maybe, maybe maybe yeah maybe he could have thought i might have been a bit rash yeah and then time might have been a bit rasher <laughs> uh maybe maybe it's time to like call a truce but yeah like you said he he doubles down so like, 
now it's not just like, oh, we need to find this person, but now we're going to put on top of Ty already sort of like going out and stealing the supplies that the Galactica needs. Uh-huh. Now he's going to like do this quarantine procedure, which is basically like, you know, separating each ship out from the pack one mm-hmm. by one, you know, and searching for her because, you know, they're constantly on the move or whatever, which was the idea of pulling in Zarek because of all his shady friends that they can, right? you know, keep moving, mm-hmm. you know, without being found or whatnot. And so, you know, I don't like this side of Adama because, like, yeah. like now we've gone... We've gone from sort of a tiff between him and the president to now, like, we're really, like, it's really him versus the fleet at this point. And totally goes against anything he's said before about believing in civil liberties and all of that. Like, Mm -hmm. even if I disagreed, which I did with his, you know, uh, imprisonment of Roslyn. Like, at least at that point, it was, like, just between them. Like, mm-hmm. he didn't dissolve the Quorum of Twelve. Ty did, but he didn't. Like, mm-hmm. he didn't, you know, try mm-hmm. to completely subvert the dem- the democratically elected part of the government. Like, presumably mm-hmm. there could have been new elections or whatever for right. a new president. At some point, but right uh, now, and and he didn't he didn't declare martial law like it mm-hmm. wasn't a martial law thing. But now it is like now he wakes up and it's a condition of martial law that Ty has declared. And so now he's just kind of going with it. He's just rolling. He's mm-hmm. like, all right, I got the power. I'm gonna do what I need to do. And I yeah, I just I okay. Like yes, we need to have conflict, but I guess I don't. I don't know. I don't. I don't like this sort of path that Adama chooses. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I don't have anything more to say than that. I guess at this point, but just kind of wanted to mention all of that. Yeah. Well, and the one thing that really strikes me too in this episode is like I feel like, yeah, that's kind of a change in Adama from, like at least what he'd said he believed in before, like, you know, the things that he kind of put up as his ideals and everything. But also there's like, it's not the only, what seems to me, personality shift in this episode. Like there's a kind of like volatility to him that I don't think, like he's so, uh, he's been up until this point, I think so kind of uh, steady and, and stoic you know and Mm. like suddenly he's having kind of like mood swings in this episode like it's like like when adam or uh when roslyn you know when he gets angry about her message or whatever like the kind of like slam the clipboard down and like that feels like that feels like tie that doesn't feel like you know an adama reaction to you know kind of have a little hissy fit kind of thing um sure and then, like, even just, you know, his, like, the his little monologues about, you know, like, he's just 
for for good and bad i think he just seems more emotional this episode you know yeah. that his his you know oh there's a moth in here that's annoying um flying around my head um like his speeches about like uh you know what what you all mean to me and and talking to chief about what is love and do we really love boomer and even like his emotion over boomer herself like all of those things feel like an unprecedented kind of emotion from him like not that he didn't have emotion but he didn't seem like a very emotive person up until this point sure and so it's like i guess what i'm saying is i feel like he's consistently inconsistent in this episode like he's inconsistent across the board like with almost everything you know like suddenly everything is he's taking everything more personally and more emotionally than he you know than he sort of had before yeah or at least he's expressing it more maybe it's wrong to say he because i think definitely with like with apollo and starbuck he had like you know pretty violent emotions about things and he didn't always behave the best around them. But like, I feel like this is on a different level. Like it's not just with those people, those kids who are closest to him. It's like, no, that this is kind of how he's reacting to the whole situation. You mm -hmm. know, is this with this kind of like, take it very personally, visceral, visceral emotion, you know, rather than be the kind of, steady you know more objective kind of leader that he's tried to be up until now right yeah um but i agree it doesn't in some like the good side of that is he's like you know when he says oh you know we don't say we uh, we love you we love each other enough like he's squishier than he normally is but like there's a bad side to that too of this isn't necessarily bringing out his best colors in um you know how he's reacting to Rosalind, you know and the whole situation this is it's not him at his at his noblest i no. don't think and and i think it also then affects his judgment because mm -hmm. the effect of that is like oh well nobody's gonna follow her like he doesn't he certainly doesn't have his you know finger on the pulse of the fleet so to right. speak like right, right. nor does ty ty's like one maybe two ships might go you know yeah, yeah like whatever and then suddenly it's like a third of the fleet goes and it's like ah dang yeah <laughs> uh, like where did that come from and you know that happens at the, like we find that out right near the end so you know, we mm -hmm. don't know what, if anything, he learns from that. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, there is there is that aspect of, had you been a little bit more in touch? Like, what, like, again, it's the same sort of thing. Like, did, did he expect Rosalind to stay in her brig? Did he expect all of the ships to just, like, <laughs> roll over and go through quarantine procedure without any say in the matter and you know listen to this illegally declared martial law like mm -hmm. you you know these assumptions like i agree with you like he, he does seem to be acting more like ty in that he's just sort of assuming that everyone's going to bow to his authority 
and you know do whatever he says when right like history shows that that's not going to be the case <laughs> well and i feel like it's the first time where there's been that kind of schism between what the military says is going to happen and what the fleet like the civilian population want to happen mm. so suddenly he's you know used to being mr commander who you know I give orders and people follow them. And now that's not true when you have a bunch of annoying civvies, as Ty would say, who say, well, we don't like it and we don't have to do what you tell us. You know, um, yeah. you know, it's that kind of Which, assumption that it, if if I'm saying it, it, it not only do I presume it's the right choice, but even if it's not, you have to do it. Yeah. Um, Which is one of those things where... Like this, this is where the it would be nice to know more about the official structure mm -hmm. of the government in BSG mm -hmm. because, mm -hmm. like, this is one of those things where like it, it's it's just different than the American system. Um, yes. Yeah. You sure. know, in in the American system, the elected civilian official is the head and chief of commander of right. the army. So. Right. Part in part that resolves that issue. Right. Uh, now that's not to say that there couldn't still be like, you know, they could perhaps you know, you know, still capture the legislature or you know do something like that if there was mm -hmm. such a schism in wartime. And and yes, there are rules for declaring martial law under American, you know, law and whatever. But there's not, there's not that. Like, it almost seems like in BSG world, land, universe, whatever, um, that there's, that Roslyn and Adama have an equality of sorts, except mm -hmm. that that equality is erased by the fact that uh, uh, Adama has all of the military power. Mm. And so you get like, like recently there was a attempted military coup in Turkey. Mm -hmm. in Turkey and it's right. just like, like that sort of thing doesn't seem to happen in in democracies where the head of the government is also the head of the military. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Maybe maybe I'm being naive or forgetful of something, but um, mm -hmm. I'm sure Tom McNardy will correct us because he knows much more about that <laughs> yeah. sort of thing than I do. Um, but it, it it just seems so different than than our system. So it it right. it seems strange to me, and and I don't know if they're modeling it after some other specific system that where that is the case, or if it's just that it becomes much easier to do this sort of thing when you have an almost complete collapse right. of civilization. Right. Right. <laughs> um, well, and I think that's part of it too, is that the system, whatever their system was or was designed to be, it has collapsed. And sure. so they're clinging to the scraps of something that, um, kind of like the speech that Sarah gave before is in some ways irrelevant in the sense that it wasn't designed for this situation. So, you know, there may have been, you know, checks and balances and protocols in place for this kind of, I mean, A, this situation might not have come up mm -hmm. under normal circumstances. And if it did, we have a system in place for, okay, there's a dispute between these 
equal but but separate powers whose call is yeah. it in this given and, whatever and, and also the there probably is, would have been a police force that could have right. gone up against the military right which, to some which, degree. which they don't which they don't have which, here right. so um which was adama's big fear once upon a time that was his big fear of you know becoming you know the 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 police and the military in one who then turns on his own people. Um, yeah. But, glad he didn't do that. Yeah. That was, that was a real worry there for a while. Um, so I think that part of the confusion is, you know, just that like, I, you know, whether that was by design, I don't know, but I feel like it's appropriate in the sense that like, you're trying to apply you know, the rules of sort of civil democracy to like, you know, uh, a bunch of, you know, random people flying through space who kind of are trying to follow rules that are there any rules anymore? The rules are kind of being made up or ignored as suits them in the situation. And when there's a, when there's a dispute, there's no, there's no one to turn to, to say, how do we, you know, resolve this? There's no sort of other body that can kind of like objectively determine the right way to do it. So, um, yeah. All right. So, um, I want to talk to you about, you kind of brought up like Adama's discussion about Boomer um the interrogation of the chief much different than ty's interrogation right like this is yeah. um ty was all about the slapping around and whatnot um adama's right. more like the philosophical did you love her could you Talk can you even love feelings. a machine yeah. Yeah. um well yeah. and is it even so much an interrogation because i i got an echo of the chief coming to adama to ask him to go easy on so so then, and, and like this is the chief, his kids keep doing these naughty things to protect him. And he has to come to Adama and say, look, they're just these mixed up kids. They don't know what they're doing. You know, go easy on them. Yeah. Which Adama, again, doesn't really do. He, he goes by the book of what, you know, the punishment that they've earned and everything. Right. Right. Kelly gets 30 days in the break for discharging a weapon and putting people in danger. Right. Um, Which is kind of a slap on the wrist, to be honest. Although, I mean, they're looking at Boomer as an enemy, so I guess it's not... It's certainly... They're not viewing it as Callie murdered somebody. Right. Um, right. Or at least not not someone on our side and not a human being. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe it doesn't satisfy the chief who would like to see Callie out right away. Right. And he's sort of arguing the temporary insanity and, mm -hmm. you know, PTSD stuff. Um, which is not unreasonable. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. you know, there, I mean, we saw how Callie was acting sort of leading up to that. Right. She certainly wasn't, didn't seem to be acting like herself. Mm -hmm. um, also though, there was the fact that she was acting in the chief's best interest. Not that he was necessarily around to see that, but mm -hmm. like, right. She, I don't, she thought she was. Yeah. I don't mean to put it quite this, Crassly, but like there is a sort of 
you know, scratching each other's back sort of thing going on there. And I don't necessarily think that that's how they were, how anyone's looking at it, but it would would be remiss not to mention that. Um, well, yeah, because again, he doesn't say the same words, but it reminds me of what he, again, going in to defense of sinus and saying, I think he thought he was doing this for me out of some kind of mix, misplaced loyalty or something like that's pretty much exactly what he's arguing here for Callie is, you know, like she thought she was doing, you know, the right thing and she was mixed up and didn't know what, you know. Yeah. So it is a kind of him, I guess, feeling obligated to go to bat for these people who do these, you know, rash and extreme things to kind of protect him. Same. Um, but there's also that, that sort of moment where the sort of thought stopping moment where, uh, Adama says, you'll see her again. Mm. Uh, you know, there are many copies, you'll see her again. And like the chief hadn't really considered that, right? <laughs> right? Like, right. like you just kind of tell by the look on his face, like, oh, wait a minute. Like, oh yeah, yeah. She is a Cylon, so... Right. Um, right, as whereas, we know that Sharon is flying back to the fleet and everything. Right. I mean, and obviously there being many more copies beyond that, but... Um, right. Yeah, that, that being a thought that hadn't and occurred to him. Not that, like... Like, I mean, the chief probably knew that, right? Because there, there would have been alerts about, you know, Leoban and Doral mm -hmm. and, you know... Right. And... Right. Uh, six, but right. using whatever what what was the name she used again? Shelley. Um, Shelley, right? And uh, you know, so Chief might have sort of known that intellectually, but right. like this is it, this is different. Again, this is a different situation because it's someone he loved, someone he knew well, you mm -hmm. know, but who is a Cylon? Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah. All right. Um, I don't know that I have a ton to say about Roslyn and Lee and them. Um, you know, they, they're moving around. They're on like this freezer ship. Apparently they have like frozen goods in space. Um, right. Is it like a meat, a meat packing? Yeah. Like a meat locker or something. Or something. <laughs> um, uh, Lee, like they, they come up with the idea of like addressing the fleet and all of this. And Lee tries to record a message, but can't really go through with it for whatever reason he he's you know perennially indecisive and um <laughs> sort of tries to play the line yeah yeah um rosa <laughs> i love her all right i'm playing the religious card i know exactly what to do how does this thing work like yeah all right you know what to do but can't actually do it um but yeah no they get they get the message out you know, there's this like appointed hour where they're going to mm -hmm. send out a, a signal and everyone needs should, you know, everyone who wants to can follow them. Um, sort of along with that, though, is is as she's playing this religious card, like, oh, people are starting to believe her, too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so you get that scene where, you know, all the guys like get down on their knees and, yeah. you know, she's like, oh, no, no, this isn't right. This isn't what I'm doing. But you know, her priest there is like, 
this is kind of your path. So you gotta, you gotta yeah. follow it and, and you need to bless these people. Cause that's, that is who you are now. Um, yeah. regardless of how you may feel right? based on what you just said and did and all of that, you know, you need to, you need to right. go down this road. Well, and it's like a double-sided thing because like from, from the kind of faith point of view, there's the priest's point of this is what you might be meant for, even if you don't feel comfortable with it. So kind of just submit to it and let the gods sort of work their will in you. And it's not really even about you. It's like, this is the role that you're playing. So just sort of accept it and go with it. But from like the more cynical point of view, it's like, yeah, like when you play the religious card, this is what happens. You know, people, if you're going to, if you're going to put it like that, you know, of I'm playing this card in order to get people to, do and act the way I want them to, then these are, that's what it means is suddenly they're going to look at you as this religious authority. And, yeah. you know, you kind of don't have room to feel uncomfortable with that because you've explicitly kind of exploited that side of things. So, you know, it's kind of uncomfortable there, I think, for her of like, not knowing how to feel about it. Should I feel guilty that I'm kind of, you know, manipulating, you know, and maybe even misleading these people to get them to do what I want. But on the other hand, she seems to be at least somewhat believing her own story of, okay, there really is an arrow. There really is an earth. Mm. I'm really this divine leader. And I guess I have to go, you know, yeah. through with all that. So, um, yeah. It just makes for awkwardness all around, I think. Um, but it does give her a following. Yeah. And so she goes and a third of the fleet goes with her. And mm -hmm. where they go, nobody knows. Well, they know, presumably, but we don't. Well, yeah. and to bring it back to, to the the kind of echoes of the Kara stories in season one, again, we have... The question of do we wait for Kara or not? And suddenly Rosalind and Adama have switched. You know, like it's Adama saying, this is stupid. We should be going. And it's Rosalind saying, no, we have to wait for Starbuck to come back. Mm. Um, you know, obviously, again, situation is different. But the, the story is the same. It's just the players have changed. They've all like, you know, reversed their their positions and are kind of now playing sort of slightly different roles. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm glad we ended early on that one because we're probably going to go over on Buffy. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. Uh, no. We didn't. Oh, um, anywho, if you want to get up and get a drink now, go ahead, folks. Pause it. Take a little we'll, intermission. We'll, we'll, we'll be here. Um, we'll come yeah. back for Act 2 in, in a very musical uh, yeah. You know. So I wanted to sing our commentary. Um but Kat said no. So yeah, we'll we'll I blame her. Um that idea. Not that anyone would want to hear me sing <laughs> that, but anyhow. So yeah, uh so we're at we're at the long awaited musical episode. Yeah, once finally. more with feeling. 
only been hearing about this forever. Yeah. So um, before we talk about it, let's talk about it. Um, I, I I wanted to just mention some production related things. Um, obviously, written and directed by Joss. Um, only episode this season that he does, mm -hmm. and and this is the only season where he only directs and writes one episode. So. Mm -hmm. uh, Take that for what it's worth. He put a lot of time into it. Um, spent something like six months or something like writing it. Like had been writing it, like yeah. before before the end of you know before season five ended. Uh -huh. um, had started writing it. Um, right, which I I watched on the DVD. The little there's a little behind the scenes thing, and it kind of said that that was the reason that like he always wanted to do it, but basically when he was directing and show running on a regular basis he didn't have time because he not only wrote you know the the book and the lyrics he also wrote the music he also scored and orchestrated all the music himself mm. so it was he basically you know he's a little one man you know yeah well uh, and i mean he did have so you have like christoph beck who is the show uh uh score person uh -huh. what do you call that Compo composer. composer there you go i knew i knew there was a word for it uh, <laughs> score person um score he was the scorekeeper uh no uh different thing altogether uh yeah no i mean so you have christoph beck who was involved and there uh, were mm -hmm. of course like choreographers and yeah. that kind of thing um i know uh in the in the dvd commentary i didn't watch the the same featurette that you're talking about but i did listen to the commentary um, you know, Whedon says that his wife, Kai Cole, helped him, um, by singing all the women's parts and stuff when they were kind of going through it and refining it and mm -hmm. all of that too. So, um, certainly had, had help with a lot of it, but yeah, like, I mean, the, the main songs and, and he actually, like, there are songs that he wrote that ended up not making it and verses of songs that made it, but some of the verses had to be like cut out. Like there's, right. you know, in Giles's song, um, standing, there was like a whole verse that he cut out to make sure that it would fit in appropriately with how, um, his song kind of feeds in with Tara's reprise mm -hmm. there at the end and that kind of mm -hmm. thing. So, um, yeah, a lot of work, his, his first attempt apparently at writing music and, uh, and you know, this type of thing. So, I mean, hmm. I, w I wish my first attempt had gone as <laughs> yeah, well. Right? Um, he, he says he learned guitar to specifically to write this episode oh and all of that. Um, now I think, I mean, he, he, I think he was musical before. It like must I think be he played like piano and, yeah, and yeah. stuff. Um, yeah. perhaps I don't, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm wrong in that, but, um, it would, it would be hard to believe that he just simply like picked up guitar and did all that in like six months and yeah, whatever. Um, so the episode itself, uh, longer, longest episode of the series, uh, by mm -hmm. like eight minutes. Uh, it, if you don't count, like if, if you count the first episode of this season, which remember ran as a single episode. Right. Uh, right. But it's like a two, but it's, really. it's like a two parter, yeah. you know, yeah. double wide kind of thing. Right. So, right. If you count that as two episodes, then this is the longest episode, um, yeah. which is typically how people do count them. Yes, uh, the yes. only episode to be actually shot in widescreen, um, 
Now, I know Fox has gone and messed around with stuff after the fact, mm. uh, to many people's chagrin. Yeah. Um, but this this was actually shot in widescreen and presented in widescreen and all of that. So um, the only one of the series to be done that. Uh, ended up being released on its own as its own DVD. Um, not, you know, obviously as part of the season and then eventually mm-hmm. the complete series as well. But um, this episode just had its own standalone DVD, uh, got its own standalone soundtrack um, that was released right at the beginning of season seven. Um, And the soundtrack itself actually uh, appeared on the Billboard uh, list at number 49 and peaked on the Billboard soundtracks list at number three. So got a pretty good uh, Mm -hmm. traction behind there as well. Um, We can talk about like the different opening scene and that kind of stuff. Um, but did definitely want to note that all the cast members do their own vocal parts. Um, mm-hmm. Now, there were two cast members specifically who asked to have fewer vocal parts. <laughs> um, one of those was Michelle Trachtenberg, who actually asked if she could do a dancing part rather than a singing part. Um, she does do a little bit of singing, of course. Yeah. Um, but that that uh, apparently she was trained in ballet, and so you get that uh, little bit there at the bronze when she's mm-hmm. first captured and all of that um Mm -hmm. and then allison hannigan really really did not want to um (laughs) sing so i think i think there's like two lines in the whole thing that are actually just her alone and the rest of it's like as part of the chorus or or whatever yeah um i I know there's one in um i've got a theory and then there's a line in there's a line about this song's this line's just yeah and walk through the fire which is like a little nod to that like right like yeah yeah you can kind of guess that uh you know we're we're keeping her voice sort of i didn't realize that they had requested that but definitely those two did stick out as yeah uh doing a lot less than some of the others i mentioned that but i also want to like because i think i mean whether this was just fortuitous or whether you know joss wrote it this way or whatever um, I do think there's some story implications too, mm-hmm. based on, you know, stuff that gets revealed or you know whatever as part mm-hmm. of the, you know, uh, episode goes on. So we can we can talk about some of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, otherwise. So and then of course you get um, two great cameos from uh, people who aren't actors but who are producers on the show with uh, David Fury singing. They got the mustard out very bombastically um, and sort of like full form. And then Marty Knoxon doing her uh, very nice vocals of, you know, pleading, weepy, yeah. pleading with the uh, meter man uh, and, yeah. and, and it's kind of giving her, uh, all of the sort of pat excuses as to why she shouldn't get a ticket. Um, it's sort of her doing her Les Mis, you know, like this is her... Fontaine, like her Fontaine weeping, like, you know, yeah. what, how miserable life is because of her parking ticket. Right. Um, um, yeah. So that's, that's nice and fun. Um, although David Fury, I know we've pointed out he, he has cameoed before in episodes. I know he was in an Angel episode, actually. can't remember if this might be the only Buffy episode, but anyway. Yeah. Um, and then we get, uh, the guest appearance of Hinton Battle. Um, I don't know if you if you're familiar with him at all. Uh, I'm I'm not. They mentioned that I think he was maybe in like the original, like on Broadway and in the Wiz and stuff. Yes. But I don't. I'm not 
Um, um, he's not one that I know. He three-time Tony Award-winning dancer was uh, the Wiz is the one that everyone sort of brings up um, in mm-hmm. the original. Uh, he played the part that Michael Jackson played in the TV version. Uh, right, the uh, scarecrow, the scarecrow equivalent. Yeah, and uh, um, was also in like Miss Saigon and and a number of other things. Um, okay. Has has gone on to do choreo. Like I believe he actually did help with some of the choreography here. Maybe it just was some of his own parts um, mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, but has gone on. He's been on like Dancing with the Stars and that kind of stuff since as well. So. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, and then, of course, we can't move on without talking about sort of the reception. Um, mm. Huge, huge reception. Uh, I mean, I'll, it's easy to find what people have said about this episode. So I'm going to leave it up as an exercise to the listener to go out and see. But a lot of critics, even critics who maybe didn't like the show and, and who didn't even think that like the singing or music was all that special. Mm-hmm. seemed to recognize that Whedon was doing something different and above and beyond sort of the normal course of action here. So um, yeah. you have those people and then you have the people who are just like best episode ever of like any TV show. Um, it was <laughs> nominated for an Emmy for Outstanding Musical Direction. However, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. Uh, National Academy of Television Arts and Sciences, which, um, you know, hosts the Emmys, forgot to put it on the ballots for <laughs> 2002. Um, and there's... Of course they did. There's, there is, or at least was, some controversy about that. Um, some people thought it was a slight because it was a genre show. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and we talked about before right. how, they like... forgot, you how, know. How, <laughs> yeah, how, like, uh, whatever. But, like, a lot of yeah. people... A lot of people apparently were calling for this to be the best, you know episode of of the season certainly musically anyway mm-hmm. um and all of that so um there was a, a lot of uproar not from Whedon himself but from like fans and and supporters even within mm-hmm. sort of the academy and stuff mm-hmm. um Hugo nominated for best dramatic presentation Nebula uh nominated for best script so we talked about that award before and I guess did it go up against the BSG episode this time around um, I don't. Uh, I don't know. This would have no, been. No, I think it's still too early. Is it still it? too early? Well, I think so. This would have been two thousand two. So yeah. I, so right. I think it's, right. it's still like a year or, or two or two. Right. Two thousand three was when the um, uh, uh, the mini series was yeah. right. Okay. Yeah. So um, TV Guide placed it uh, at number fourteen on its top one hundred episodes of all time TV episodes, um, and then uh, it has continued like you can go out there now and find people writing blog posts within the last year talking about how this is still their favorite episode and and what they love about it and doing you know similar to to what we're doing with rewatches and that sort of thing um but for years literally after uh the episode aired um once it came out on dvd so you know probably starting around 2003 um the there were fan held sing-alongs so fans would rent out theaters and have this and pack the theaters um, much like rocky horror picture show um would have these sort of you know massive sing-alongs there was actually a troupe that would uh that got permission from fox to sort of travel around and and act out on stage along with like 
the movie and sing along going, you know, behind or the movie, the, the episode going along behind them um, and act it out and have like, like sort of additional direction and things going on while the uh, episode was playing and that sort of thing. Um, and, and that uh, happened up through about 2007. So, you know, good four or so years after the episode aired. Um, however, as part of that, now there's, I mean, I'm sure there's different sides to it and whatever. Um, what was happening was that there were, you know, they were charging for these things. And so it came out, uh, the Screen Actors Guild, which, uh, you know, a number of the, the actors and stuff in the episode and, and uh, other people were sort of found out about this and, you know, were like, hey, you're charging money for these episodes, you know, for, for lots of people, you know, to these large audiences. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're not seeing any of that money. So, you know, what's up with that? And, yeah. and they kind of, um, they kind of slapped a, uh, invoice down on Fox, you know, 20th century Fox's desk. And, uh, we're like, okay, all these, you know, airings occurred and you owe us this amount. And Fox was like, well, we didn't see any of that money. So no, we don't. And kind of went back and forth, but long and short of it was Fox pulled any permissions to use that. Um, we didn't wait in said that was a shame and disappointment and, you know, they were kind of back and forth, but the, the long and short of it is that, that the sing-alongs stopped. Yeah. Uh, although, the I will... The sing-alongs died. Yeah. Uh, I will say that even now, like, I'm a member of um, a couple of different Buffy-related or Whedon-related Facebook groups, and, like, every so often you'll see um, someone will post, like, a still with, like, a lyric, you know, from the song, and then you'll have sort of, like, the virtual sing-alongs where... Then, like, one person will comment, and it'll be the next line, and then the next person will comment, and be the next right. line, next line. So so you still sort of get the spirit. I mean, not the same effect, of course, yeah. but kind of the same spirit of those sorts of things uh, still happening even to this day, more than 10 years later. So Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, anyway, so obviously lots of good stuff there. Um, so, yeah, where would you like to begin? So... I mean, I think we kind of thought that really um, uh, chronologically is the only way to go through this episode to make sure that we kind of hit the different songs and... Or songologically. Songologically. Uh-huh. But maybe... Okay, so we don't have to go... (laughs) We don't have to go... I don't want to... You know, we're already over our time I don't want to go on for too long more before we get into the nitty-gritty but maybe um wanted to say just a couple things about just the concept rather than the kind of reception of it just like the idea of doing you know Mm -hmm. uh, a musical episode and kind of the implications of that and everything um and one thing that struck me in the the documentary that's on the dvd was um Joss saying that the reason he wanted to do I mean, besides him being musically inclined and I think being kind of a theater guy anyway, like enjoying, it seems like musicals are definitely a love of his. I mean, he goes on to do um, Dr. Horrible and everything. Right. So he has the, the, the theater bug. Um, yeah. And, and Sondheim is like a, yes. a yeah. big 
right um, a big influence yeah yeah influence yeah yeah so um which i love you know that's right up you know my alley um so i'm i'm happy with that but <laughs> him kind of saying um that it seemed to suit the show because of the kind of overwrought emotion of the whole thing anyway like he kind of said like they kind of seem like they're about to burst into song any moment sort of at any given episode and so it just feels natural that they should do that um and so which wasn't a thought that ever had occurred to me but once he puts it that way I kind of see what he means like there is something theatrical and and dramatic and you know um emotionally sort of you know charged about this show and the story and everything um yeah um I feel like I had another thought right behind yeah. that one and, and well kind of lost it for a second well um, and just so from like a, a high concept sort of point of view yeah um definitely I mean in the in the commentary he talks about too how you know sort of people love to hate on musicals right like that there's I mean obviously there are there are many fans of musicals, but, mm -hmm. but there are also many people who like, you know, wouldn't be caught dead going to a musical. It's so, a fairly polarizing genre. Yeah. So, you know, in addition, you know, in addition to his own love of musicals and, and wanting yeah. to write one, he also wanted to write it in a way where it, the, you, it could sort of draw in those people who, uh, you know, who, who wouldn't normally be, mm -hmm. you know, invited into uh, a, a musical in that way and so you so you know he comes up with this idea of like yes we're in a musical but it's weird and strange and like we don't know why and we don't really like it <laughs> like mm. like you know yeah so from like the, a conceit you know perspective like there's just this this thing like like it's not it's not really right what's going on but we we just kind of have to go we're with it and figure to, out yeah, yeah like like we're compelled to do the singing. And so you get like in a, uh, you know, in like I've got a theory um, or, or just before that, like when, you know, Buffy's like, so did anyone else burst out in a song last night? Like, <laughs> like nobody like, wants to mention like, it. <laughs> like they're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. And you get like, I was like, okay, that explains like the orchestral music that I couldn't yeah. figure out where it was coming from. And like, all this. so you get like, you get these like diegetic explanations for, you know, yeah. all of the stuff that in a, in a musical, a normal, a normal musical would just yeah. be like, okay, the band starts up or the orchestra starts up and like there's music and people singing. And it's just, right. that's just the form of how they're telling the story. But in this case, like it's actually part of the story and all yeah. of that. And, and, and from a, you know, the songs themselves, he said he really wanted to make sure that each of the songs um, and all of the songs, like, together you know uh, uh advance the plot that it wasn't just like mm -hmm. except for maybe that one line that willow gives that we already talked about right. like that right they're that, not that, just filler that yeah. they're not just filler that there's you know um like other other it, it's hard to say whether other shows were inspired by this but certainly like mm -hmm. shows like scrubs uh mm -hmm. had a musical episode but it came like really late well okay this is late this is season six of a seven season show but like with scrubs it was like 
hey, we can't think of anything else to do, so let's do a musical episode. And yeah, okay, maybe some of the songs had sort of a little bit to do with the plot, but not really. Yeah. Um, and that kind of thing. And, and like Joss Whedon called those types of shows like variety shows that happen to be part of a sitcom. Like, mm-hmm. you know, they just like, they just stuck this episode in where it's like, you might have these little interlinking speaking parts and then it's like just a song about whatever. Like, right. but right. for him, you know, he really wanted to make sure that the songs were part of the story that, that the singing was, you know, part of the story itself. Yeah. And, and so yeah. you kind of get these different, you know, multiple layers. And then you, you get within that, you get like different, um, you know, sort of references too. So you get like in the beginning where Buffy's talking about going through the motions, she, you know, she talks about like playing a part. And of course it's like, well, here you have Sarah Michelle Geller playing the part of Buffy. And, right, and so right. you get some different levels going on there or, um, like right. Anya's thing about there's a there's a fourth wall. Or yeah, there's, there's, it felt like there were only three walls, and there yeah. was no fourth wall. And yeah, yeah like yeah. like and yeah. and her constant like attempt to try to figure out like what type of song it was. Like oh, right. ours was more of a pastiche, you know, historical, you know, right, whatever. Right. Whereas you know, yeah, was yours a runaway, you know, rock hit or whatever, yeah. you know, pop hit yeah. or something? Which and, I think. No, sorry. Finish your thought. No, I I I mean. Just all of that, you know, it's aware, but it's it's aware in the way that the characters are aware. Yeah. C- certainly, we're aware of it as as viewers, but it's it's not just like it's not like like I want to kind of bring in Tolkien here a little bit because it's not mm. like like it's it's he talks about I believe it's in on fairy stories, although I may be wrong about like where you can you can have fun with the magic but you can't make fun of the magic mm. you know what i mean and i feel like that's very much what Joss Whedon is doing here like he's he's having fun with it and he's he's pointing out things and yes there's uh you know times where maybe maybe there's a little half wink to the crowd but it's not yeah. it's never in detriment to the story like it, it it's in service of the story still um, when that happens. So, right. Right. Well, and all the things that you were saying, I feel like they show that he understands and appreciates the musical genre. Whereas, um, you know, I think there are a lot of people who maybe don't like musicals because it's just not their thing. Um, but there are also, I think a lot of people who don't like it because they don't really necessarily understand Mm. Uh, they maybe are if they if they don't watch them they might not understand the conventions um, and so there's things like yeah in a good musical the songs should advance character um, right. they should tell you you know they're not just there to have a song and dance in between some lines or some jokes they're there to they're kind of like a Shakespearean aside like and and I I want to clarify that when Josh said that he was talking about like musical episodes of TV shows, not necessarily like musicals completely as a genre. Sure. Sure. No, but I mean, I think there are musicals that probably do that too, that aren't necessarily that thoughtfully crafted. I mean, like everything else, there's, there's varying levels of quality and everything. Um, But the way in which not only does the song tell you, what the character is thinking and feeling internally, but the way that like the music that's chosen reflects the character, you know? So Mm. the fact that, you know, 
the the kind of music that Buffy sings versus the kind of music that Spike sings versus Giles versus Tara should reflect the character, you know, that they sing. Or like, I mean, Anya's and Xander's being sort of funny and, you know, rambunctious and kind of goofy. And yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, not every musical does that. Like this one mixes genres a little bit more. Some of them are definitely more in a particular style. Mm -hmm. Um, but Certainly, at the very least, the way the music is, you know, written and composed for the character should be sort of tailored to to them. Um, You know, I mean, and you can go as intricate with it as you want down to, you know, um, the types of, you know, registers and time signatures and the types of instruments that are used, you know, are all should be reflective of of plot and character and everything. Um, sure. And so it's all sort of, it's all in your storytelling apparatus and everything. Um, I'm sure I'll think of more big picture things to say too, but um, before we get into the individual songs really quick, just mm-hmm. also wanted to mention that I did kind of notice uh, the, the smaller singing parts for, um, you know, for Dawn and for Willow, um, which is interesting in a couple different ways. Um, I kind of suspected, I didn't know that they've requested that, but kind of, you know, it's a nice way to feature those of the cast who do have nice voices sort of naturally. Like I was really happy to see the amount of stuff that Tara had to do in this episode. Yeah. Um, like she's kind of the best part, um, you know, so To have that kind of and and a number of people, you know, mention her uh, Amber Benson as uh, you know sort of the surprise of, of the episode, yeah. like the big Which surprise. Is, again, perfectly reflective of character. You know, of she's sure. not the she's not the big sure. she's not the leader. She's not the big showy one. But when you turn on music, suddenly there's there are these hidden depths to her. You know, Mm. where she gets the big, you know, love song and she has maybe the best voice in the cast. And like, that's not something you would really suspect necessarily on the surface, but it's there kind of inside her, which I feel like is perfectly in keeping with Tara and everything. Yeah. Um, You know, so that was kind of nice to see. But also I feel like the fact that they're not even the ones that have good voices, they're not big, they're not Broadway voices. They're not big musical Mm. theater voices. And there's part of it, you know, okay, people could, I'm sure, quibble with the quality of, you know, the singing and the dancing in the episode. But like, again, not only are they not like trained or, you know, natural Broadway performers, but they're not supposed to be because it's just Buffy and her friends bursting into song. And that's, again, that's part of the conceit is that if we were suddenly compelled to live our lives in a musical, that doesn't mean you're necessarily good at it. (laughs) It just means you have to do it. (laughs) And And so, and same with like the dancing, like, um, so you can tell, uh, like with, uh, uh, Anya and Xander's number that, Emma Caulfield actually had some training, whereas, uh, uh, you know, Nicholas Brendan did not. (laughs) No, I mean, Nicholas Brendan seems to have a lot of fun with his singing and dancing. Sure. He's not very good at it. Right. But 
that's okay for the story that's being told because it's not the Buffy variety show where we would expect people to be really good at this stuff. It's sort of, no, they're under a spell and they're compelled to sing and dance and perform. But again, with their own natural ability, you know, it doesn't increase their ability. It just sort of makes them do it. So the unpolishedness of it kind of works with like the episode and what they're trying to do and everything. Um, So, I mean, there are some good voices and good performances. So it's not like it's all cringing and everything, but you know, it kind of glosses over, I think some of the, the weaker, you know, performances is saying, well, of course it's that way because it's part of, you know, the whole conceit. Um, yeah. Which is, I think a good way to, it's why, it's why Buffy can do an episode like that. I think better than other shows is you have the magic built into it. So you can get away with this sort of high concept thing, um, you know. Yeah. So, all right. So let's actually start going through it here. All right. um, let's so, as with the other high concept episodes, I think that we've had, um, it just sort of happens. You know, there's no. It's it's very much like Superstar and some of the other things that we've gotten, or Hush, where. Mm-hmm. They don't tell you what's going to happen. It just sort of happens. And you're just sort of thrown into, okay, you know, there's, I mean, it starts with the cheery kind of, you know, cheesy opening credits. And there's a more ornate orchestral, you know, you know, uh, you know. Yeah, you get you get almost like in the beginning, but you almost get like a day in the life of the Scoobies as an opening, which, um, I don't know if you noticed the second time through, I wouldn't expect certainly the first time um, is that it's the, uh, where do we go from here? uh, Refrain, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of is that opening and, and they do kind of lace in some of the other tunes throughout it, but it, but it's that primarily. Um, So you, you do get sort of the linkage, you know, to the the entire episode in that beginning. Um, But yeah, yeah. Anyway, so so, yeah, so things that I think if you know to pay attention to them would, would give tip, tip, tip their hand as to what's going on. But it's really without prelude that you get um, Buffy suddenly strolling through and then just start singing her song. Um, and again, it tells you exactly where her headspace is at, you know, uh, mm. and in in broadway terms they call this the i want song you know it's it's your protagonist singing about what they want you know it's it's dorothy over the rainbow like every broadway show has this this number at the beginning well it's Um, uh we specifically references beauty and the beast and bell singing you know yeah yeah um you know i saw a reference to ariel you know the other day of Mm -hmm. you know part of your world this is how we start the show is we have a, a heroine or you know a protagonist anyway they even have it in Hamilton <laughs> if I can bring that up for a second you know it's, I would be shocked if you didn't shocked if you didn't he knows his rules of how you start you know it's I want it's for him it's he doesn't want to throw away his shot he has a shot at glory and he's going to take it so you know that's kind of how you get your ball rolling of this is the story we're going to tell so um you know so Buffy's is all about how much she's been, I guess, kind of on autopilot since she's come back Mm. of, 
her, her lack of being able to feel, um, you know, or feel the, the, as Willow put it, the normal range of human emotions that she's, you know, accustomed to feeling. And, you know, what does she want? She wants to be alive. You know, she's technically alive. She's living, but she doesn't feel alive anymore. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's kind of the big song that tells us what her, what her dream is, what her goal is. Um, and, you know, as she's sort of half-heartedly and sort of rotely punching out you know, vampires of going through the motions. She's just sort of smacking them around, but there's no real, there's no yeah. real fight in her. It's just a chore that needs to be done. Right. Um, and they're even singing along, like they've noticed that she's also <laughs> going through the motions and they're right. kind of disappointed that, you know, Oh, what happened to the Slayer that we've heard so much about and everything. Right. Um, yeah. No, the, the sort of perfunctory, you know, aspect of her job is just sort of taken over and um like even even you get like the like she saves like this really attractive man who's like what can i do to and she's like, ah, yeah. whatever like whatever. like yeah. doesn't even yeah. you know there's no desire no whatever but but interesting that that there's at least like it does seem that there's a step that has been taken because she wants to feel it. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's that, okay, she doesn't feel alive, but she wants to feel alive. Like, there's, it, it's kind of a make it till you fake it, yeah. uh, you know, thing going on here of, right. you know, even though, like, like, it's no longer just like that she's brooding, that she's not in heaven anymore. Like, at least now she's feeling like, I at least want, to try to feel like I'm alive. She wants to want yeah. something. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah, and I don't, I mean, I don't know that there's a huge message to the song. I mean, I, sure. you know, beyond that, like, it's it's just sort of all, all the same, um, you know, repetition going on there. But, mm -hmm. but I think that's the, that's the one different, that's like the one new piece that we get, I think, from, Mm -hmm. you know previous episodes where it just kind of felt like like yeah she was going through the motions but you didn't get a sense that she really cared much about what else yeah. was going on now at least you know that like like there is a spark there of some kind of desire if yeah even if it's as little as i just i desire to desire <laughs> you right. know like um right. yeah anyway um so yeah, so she, you know, goes out slaying, you know, bursts into song, a little weird. And then apparently they all do this separately and then kind of don't talk about it until right. Buffy brings it up. And if there is that thing of, you imagine it's like, well, that's weird, but I'm not going to say anything because it's kind of strange and embarrassing until yeah, Buffy I brings it up. Drunk, like, and then Buffy brings it up and suddenly, mother of God, it was, <laughs> I thought it was just me, you know, like they all had their own, yeah. you know separate experiences um yeah. you know and that's when we see that it's the whole town you know so we get the mustard guy and uh, which is again a great conceit because you know we don't have to talk about every single occurrence but throughout the episode in the background of all the shots are all the other townspeople as the stars of their own musicals you know the right. 
the parking ticket lady is the star of this tragedy, you know, like she's in the middle of this, like she's, her character's just going downhill, but that's like another story. You know, we only get the yeah. fringes of her story, you know, um, or the mustard guy, like that's the big finish. Like that's the triumphant closing, you know, right. of the whole thing. Um, right. You know, like you can just imagine that he's, he's been, somehow quest, like you know <laughs> all night like he's been trying to figure out how to get the mustard get out and mustard finally out. yeah they did it yeah um, um yeah so yeah and then there's just random people like you know the guys with the brooms and you know just doing little like things Which, in the background and everything the guys with the brooms are the same guys as who wear the masks who are like the demons lackeys oh okay um, yeah they apparently uh, they appear in several spots throughout the show. Okay, um, right, just right. you know, sort of yeah. randomly it's featured dancers. Yeah. Um, okay, but then we so we get there. I've got a theory, which if not, I don't know whether how that fits into the musical canon, but certainly a typical Buffy scene, but just sort of in musical form of right. everybody sits around and theorizes about what could it what could be happening. Um, you know, and they've all got different conflicting ideas. Um, yeah, you know, I like how Giles kind of gets it right on the first go and then they kind of move on. <laughs> right, right. Well, <laughs> it's a dancing he, demon, he but even that's dismisses it. He's like, yeah, yeah, I, I have yeah. a theory. It's a demon, a dancing demon. No, something isn't right. Like, yeah. and he yeah. kind of dismisses them. Then, then Willow, um, has a theory that someone, that some kid is dreaming we're all stuck inside his wacky Broadway show, which, you know, entirely plausible. We had nightmares yeah. in the first season. We had restless in season mm -hmm. four, like, you know, night mm -hmm. nightmares and dreams. Like mm -hmm. we've, we've been there before. So could be. Right. And then, uh, then Xander's theory of witches, uh, which, right. which, yeah, I mean, we'll get to Xander cause like he should know <laughs> what's mm -hmm. going on here. Um, right. But like he's just throwing out this uh, witches thing, and so uh, of course he looks at the two witches and realizes how ridiculous that right. notion. But is. an offensive, you know, thing. Yeah. He, you know, disparaging uh, witches. Um, and we we can't forget Anya and her bunnies. No. Um, no, and she kind of goes off and this. I don't even know what to call her little. You know like rock tangent you know of yeah. swirling cameras and you know show flashing lights, lights and everything yeah yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah so uh in this commentary we even said that um emma caulfield would just sort of go around like on set like yelling hard rock lyrics at him or like or like turning just random things into like pseudo hard rock lyrics and stuff mm -hmm. so so he said that was he he threw that in kind of as a uh yeah. you know a nod to her yeah nod to that or whatever and 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 also to just so yeah i mean she's got a good voice and whatever to kind of show yeah. her off a little bit um and, right and of course play on the bunny here yeah. um yeah or midgets or midgets. <laughs> uh um uh, yeah but yeah the um sort of end of this though right is is that you get buffy saying it doesn't matter because we can 
we can work it out, right? Like we can we can figure it out. This is something if we if we do together that we can, you know, that we can face it together and we can figure out what's going on and and fight it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is nice. That's a nice idea. Yeah. Oh, it sounds so easy, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> We're still in the early stages of the musical. Everything's, you know, right. looking pretty rosy. And and also, like, there's there's the fact that, like, this is coming from Buffy, who mm-hmm. recently has not been too much of a let's do everything together kind of a person. Sure. Um, sure. You know, especially with... So, you know, go, building off of her last song of going through the motions, there is, there is a... A sense of that too because right when the song stops she asks giles like okay so what is it and he's like well i i thought you just said it didn't matter right <laughs> like like so so does it matter or what and right she plays it off you know with her well i'm not quaking in my stylish and affordable boots but um there is that mention of like she is just sort of giving lip service like she does mm-hmm still kind of have that like okay we need to figure this out and go yeah. kill something or whatever um right right even right though, this is the kind of thing i would say at this moment right. um, and and looking know. at giles to be the one to provide that answer right right yeah so uh then dawn comes in um <laughs> that made me laugh about the oh my god did it sing like <laughs> the pterodactyl yeah her, her pterodactyl thing it, like and i like that you know the whole school sang about math and you know it's just you just sing just sing about whatever's going on you know not everything is super dramatic it's just whatever's in your life you can right. sort of make it into a song um yeah and so yeah after the big song about how let's do it all together that's kind of not what happens um i mean they make a mention of the fact later that buffy's supposed to be you know looking into stuff that she's you know kind of not and then um you know tara and willow make an excuse to sort of say they're going to go off and do research but really they're going to go enjoy the music and the sunshine and you know right uh you know and, and there's just company and each other's company. And there's just a growing sense of, you know, the, the musical is not, the whole thing has not yet turned into being a problem yet. Yeah. Like, like they're all like, yeah, it's weird, but it's also kind of nice and it's kind of cool and we're not too worried about it. Um, you know, and so it's not something that's like, you're, they're not seeing what's threatening about it. Um, you know, uh, yeah. So yeah. So yes, they Tara and Willow go off, and yeah, Tara gets the big, um, you know, uh, the big love song, which, as I said, you know, was nice to see her featured, um, and you know, kind of all about their their journey so far and Tara's sort of expression of this side of her that sort of, you know, been able to blossom with Willow that, you know, that's kind of what all the lyrics are pointing to is, you know, Mm -hmm. um, kind of, well, 
it's complicated though because you know later we'll get the 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 shady other meaning of I'm under your spell and everything. Right. right. But, but even before we get to that, there's still that sense of, I think the sentiment there is that look how I've been able to flourish through this relationship, which is nice. But then also there's a side of it of I'm under your spell seems to be putting again, a lot of the credit to Willow, mm. you know, to say like, you know, to kind of say like, well, I'm who I am because of you, you know, you made me this way, which sounds lovely, but also you would think Tara would take some ownership of how she's become, you know, like, like, yes, in the relationship, she's been able to find this, this new side of her, but also that's because of who Tara is as well. Not just Willow. It makes it sound like Willow's shaped her into Sure. This improved person and everything. And I think, I mean, I think though that even, even at the beginning, like before Tara starts singing, Willow kind of tries to say that to her. Sure. When she says, no. yeah, yeah. you know, you know, you can't imagine what they would be looking at. They're, they're looking at you. And then, but then Tara's like, yeah, well, they're looking at me and seeing you. Like, right. Like, I don't, I don't necessarily, like, I get what you're saying. I guess I'm just thinking, like, like I don't necessarily think that's where, like, I don't think Willow's making her think that or whatever. No, like, I think that's I, just another aspect of Tara's lack of confidence in herself. And and that's what I, that's what I meant. Like, you know, which, again, it's the Tara song. This is all Tara's perspective. You know, sure. it's not necessarily a commentary on Willow's feelings or thoughts at all um although it, you know it does stroke willow's ego sure like to sure. to think that she's the one who's done all this for tara and it turns out to be more accurate than even tara realizes later on so there's that too but sure. i definitely agree with you like i don't think willow sees tara as oh you know my my perfect person that I've molded to my image. Like, I think sure. that's, that's Tara's giving Willow all the credit, you know, for who she has and not necessarily realizing her own sort of agency in that growth and everything. Right. Like to say, Oh, they look at me and they see you. Well, no, that's not true. They're looking at you. Like that's the whole point is, mm -hmm. you know, that she was the one sort of, catching their eye and everything um the boys she's cured and wants the boys um <laughs> but so we, yeah so it's an interesting it's kind of a nice song but i do feel like there are like when you listen to it a couple times and in retrospect look deeper there are some troubling like notes kind un of undertones it. yeah 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 um um Whedon also says that that last line, the the repeated line uh, mm -hmm. that Tara sings there is is he says that he called it the dirtiest lyric he's ever written. <laughs> well, it's, I think it's the dirtiest scene that's ever been in Buffy, um, which it it reminds me of like wasn't it in the body that they had their first on screen kiss? Like presumably yeah, they yeah, kissed yeah. off, presumably they kissed off stage, but like it's the first time we see it. Right. I feel like he does that again of. I'm going to use a big high concept episode to sneak in something that 
otherwise might get flagged right. and objected to. But if we put it in like when there's this other, all this other stuff going on, we can get away with it. And it's, and it's <laughs> like, such a sweet moment. <laughs> like, yeah. But, but he, he, um, he does call it pornographic in the uh, commentary. <laughs> He's like, absolutely. Th th yeah. This is a pornographic scene. No doubt no. about it. And that's well, the dirtiest lyric I've ever written. And no, I mean, between the, the line, the kind of pun of the line and then the, like, you know, the, the implied stuff that's happening off screen when Willow slides as, off. And then as, as Tara's floating as Tara sort the of air. the song kind of climaxes with Tara and everything, um, you know, and then you cut to Xander. Oh, I bet they're singing right now. You know, like, yeah, I think that's definitely the, yeah. the dirtiest scene that Buffy's, but again, um, they can get away with it because it's, it's in a big song and dance and nobody's, you know, I don't know why that seems like it will slip past the censors a and, little more easily. And there's like, not to, you know, brush through it too quickly, but there's definitely th that song, Tara's song and that particular end of the song um, is, has, is brought up a number of times in, in uh, various essays and, and whatnot um, around gender and lgbtq you know mm -hmm. uh issues and stuff because uh, the tara and willow romance is really the first the first long-term you know lesbian romance on tv like ever mm -hmm. like not mm -hmm. just like on genre tv or cable tv or you right. know whatever but like of any tv and yeah. i think i think we talked about this before when we, when we talked about the body probably but um, you know, there had been like peck on the cheek or, or brief, you know, peck type yeah. of lesbian kisses before, but it was never right. like, like, it was never like a huge part of like the characters, you know, who mm -hmm. they were or whatever. So this is really, I mean, undoubtedly Whedon pushing boundaries here and, and oh, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah. So. No, but it's interesting to me that he chooses to do that. And I think smartly you know i mean other other ways of doing it sure but at least in terms of there's something crafty and clever about smuggling it into these big important concept episodes sure. you know um well i think in a quieter episode that moment you know and i'm sure even in as it was caused a certain amount of controversy, but like you can imagine if that was like the highlight of another episode, whereas here it's just one of a million different things that's going on yeah. and you can get away with the kind of silliness of the concept of her sort of rising off the bed. Like the whole thing is sort of overblown anyway. So you yeah. can just, I think you can just, you can push the envelope further because you're pushing all the envelopes at the same time. Um, um, and, and so just to step back a moment, cause you, you mentioned, um, Hush earlier, um, and, and how this is sort of a high concept, you know, episode similar to that. And, and, uh, we didn't even compares this episode to Hush in that, um, he says he, he definitely wanted to go about it, uh, in sort of the same way, uh, where he had said about Hush that when, when the characters stop talking, they start communicating. Mm -hmm. And so, so obviously very different type of not talking in this episode, mm -hmm. they're singing, 
but um, it's a different form of communication and, and you can say and do different things with it. And I think yeah. things like this and other revelations or actions or whatever you want to call them um, throughout the episode uh, definitely, definitely show how that communication changes and how the, the singing yeah. makes it possible for someone like Tara. Like you said, like this is, this is a way for Tara to, you know, sort of excel uh, where, where she wouldn't otherwise just by talking. She has mm-hmm. a stammer, which mm-hmm. granted is gone for the most part. Although we saw it return a little bit when they were fighting right mm-hmm. last episode. Um, but this is, you know, this is one of those things where like, that's one of the ways that people get over stammering or, mm-hmm. or stuttering is through song and, and, you know, that sort of yeah. thing. So definitely, definitely offers, uh, and, and the surprisingness perhaps to some people that Amber Benson has such a good voice, you mm-hmm. know, lets her communicate in, in ways that she can't otherwise. And so right. that's part of what makes that possible, I think. Right. Whereas, like you said, even Willow's lack of singing reflects someone, mm. you know, like she's not communicating open. Like if, if, if yeah. we can, if, yeah. we, if in this episode we'll equate the singing with open, honest communication to a certain extent, um, the fact that Willow is singing very little might be telling. Um, so on that note, and let's talk not. about let's talk about Xander and Anya because communication is very much the central (laughs) issue of their dance. And it brings up a question, which is like, you know, going along with the musical conventions of to what extent are the songs of others Mm. um, heard by the, by the other people on stage? Like, you know, which I think different shows take different approaches and different, you might even take a different approach between songs within a show or whatever. But like, it's this thing of, okay, in these, you know, we have this, the retro pastiche of it, as Anya calls it, reflective of this kind of idealistic veneer to their relationship of their, the kind of 1950s or 60s-ish mm-hmm. couple, you know, um, who look very nice and normal. And then you get the comedy um song of what they really think of each other you know all the things that annoy them but it's it it remains sort of unclear to what extent they can fully hear each other you know or are they each kind of in their own little world and it kind of goes back and forth um uh they hear each other okay there's there's no there well anya anya says afterwards my toes aren't hairy like Sure. Like, like they, that's the problem that okay. they go to Giles about. Like, I don't, gotcha. I don't think that that's meant to be in question. Okay. Um, All right. Maybe that wasn't always I, so clear to me. Um, yeah. Cause I wasn't sure. I, there were times when I was, I thought it was meant to be read as this is the secret inner thoughts that we don't, you know, it is share with the each irony other. of that being that, they're sharing them sure. <laughs> um, sure. and, and being kids. And actually, so I, I think that a lot of 
Well, okay. Maybe maybe I'll hold that thought until until later. But I I I I think immediately after that song, they go to Giles and like, this is terrible. What's you know, what's right. going on? Like right. and, and the thing that's terrible is that the song has forced them to reveal these inner thoughts that mm. they never wanted to tell. Um and you do get like Anya making that right reference of like my my place is where I live. Right. And right. and you know, Xander like, just give me an axe and point me at this thing because now now there's the revelation yeah. of how scared and mm. what he really thinks and whatever. And and even so to talk about the song itself, like it starts mm. out, you know, okay, they're in bed and he's gonna make her breakfast and then they're, you know, sort of talking or singing, you know, about this sweet sort of stuff. Oh, but, well, I'll never tell. And then they get into, like you said, the the specific things, you know, like he snores, she wheezes, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And um, it starts out with this sort of, bl- not blaming maybe, but like the noticing of other, of the things that the other person does. But then by the end of the song, it's Xander admitting, like, how petrified he Mm -hmm. is. And Anya admitting that, like, she's also, in a way, kind of going through the motions of, like, um, but, like, she knows, like, she's been on the vengeance demon side of things. So, like, like she says, I've read this tale. There's wedding, then betrayal. And Mm -hmm. I know there'll come a day when when I'll want to run and hide. So there there's also that fear on her part of like having a thousand years worth of experience of seeing all of these relationships go bad. And mm-hmm. I mean, let's face it, not every relationship goes bad, but she's seen all the bad ones. Like, like right. she has a skewed view because right. she's called as a vengeance demon to all the people who have the bad relationships. Right. So, right. you know, that shift I think is what happens too. And I, I feel like, like, so there's, there's two sides of the, what they won't tell. Right. It's the, it's the things I find annoying about you, mm-hmm. but those like, so if you think of like, um, like I always like uh, the scene in Goodwill hunting where Robin Williams character, uh, you know, talks about like the, the peccadilloes of, you know, like his wife farting in bed and that kind of right. thing. Like those right. are the things that you end up, loving and missing about a person so like like while it's kind of funny like at the beginning and you hear like the things that they're you know disliking about each other maybe like you also get the sense that like oh those are just the types of things in every relationship that Mm -hmm. couples need to kind of figure out and deal with and yeah like you're never gonna like is it the hair in the sink or the you know tub or is it you know cold feet in bed or whatever. Like there's always going to be something Mm -hmm. that's like annoying or whatever. But by the time you get to that end of that song where it's, you know, right. We're down in the deep seated. Yeah. We're down into like what really scares me. Um, yeah. And so I don't, I feel like I'm rambling on a little bit, so probably not the episode to do that. Um, but yeah, I, I, I 100% think that they are hearing each other. Okay. <laughs> um, if you don't, that's fine. And like, I mean, I'm, I'm open to the suggestion that maybe they're not, if there's. No, no. I mean, I think, 
I, I mean, I, you've seen it a number of times more than I have. So I think it's just a case of that just didn't, didn't penetrate my brain on, on first viewing. Um, so, but I, I think that makes sense. Um, and I, I also think with one exception, all of the songs like, like, Willow hears Tara singing, you know, mm -hmm. they all hear each other singing when they're, you know, doing their, uh, uh, I've got a theory, um, mm -hmm. with Buffy going through the motions, you have the vampires and demons singing along yeah. with her and that kind of stuff. So I, I think it's, I think in general as a overall, uh, conceit or whatever like that, that we're meant to believe that everyone else can hear each other's song. Now, whether they're paying attention, like, right. you know, they hear the guy singing about the mustard, but that doesn't mean he's hearing their song because he's doing his right. own thing. So like, that's, right. Right. that's a different dynamic, but like, right. not, not because like, and like, you get the sense that they hear the music too. Like sure. that there's definitely like oh, yeah, yeah. magical music, yeah, yeah. Yeah. you know, yeah, accompanying them and whatnot. Like, right, and you right. get Giles' little reference to, oh, that's why I heard the orchestra. Right. He had an orchestra you know? backing him up like yeah. at the local bar or whatever. Yeah. Um, and it goes along with the idea of, of the music being like honesty in the episode of saying what you really, because that's. That's really the whole thrust of the episode is all yep. the stuff that you've all been struggling with and feeling and keeping buried in is now out in the open, which sounds great, you know, but um, it, as Anya and Xander are the first to realize it's maybe a little too honest, you know, it's yeah. more honest than they wanted to be. And now it's it's out there. And um, well, and, and so, OK, that's kind of what I was going to say before when I sort of stopped myself, because to jump ahead a little bit to um to to where you have you know the demon so okay right he's, that's his kind of conclusion he's, yeah. he, he's called sweet yeah he's never actually named in the episode but i think i, I think, think it's I, in the credits i looked um, it up or something yeah because i saw that but that's that's his name so we can we can call him that um but yeah he he says uh specifically in his sort of, you know, what you feel song that, that that's his thing that like, like people reveal things that maybe they don't want to like, as part of, part of the singing and all of that. So, right. Um, I wasn't going right. to say that, it's, but since you brought up that, that's, that's sort of the thrust of the episode. Yeah, well, that's his kind of conclusion is, is you guys have been real swell and there's not a one who can say this ended well, you know, so, right. you know, you, you tell these secrets, but, you know, do they bring honesty? Yes, but they also make you confront all these things that you've been trying to, you know, yeah. avoid confronting. Um, all right, let's go on to Spike mm. uh, and uh, let me rest in peace. Um, <laughs> which is all, I feel like the whole thing is, uh, that was weird. Um, sorry. It was the ice in my cup, like <laughs> melting and shifting. I know what it was. Um, and 
I feel like the whole thing is leading up to the punchline at the end of, so you're not staying, you know, because it's, it's a whole, it's the whole song of, you know, encapsulating his kind of, I hate you. I love you. Get out of here, but please come back kind of attitude, you know, um, she's a menace. She ruins his life. She won't let him alone. Just let him rest in peace and let, you know, get out of his way. She ruins everything. And then the second she leaves, you know, there he is pining and missing her and wondering why didn't she want to stay after I like, you know, complained at her for the last, you know, three minutes. Um, so, I mean, I think that's kind of the, the big spike idea. And then, but I mean, it's more than that too, because it's him kind of saying that to her, like, whereas up until now for this season, anyway, I think he's been kind of happy to have her hang around him more than she had previously. Um, it's only now that we're getting his frustration with that of feeling like she only does that because, you know, she can't talk to her other friends and she, you know, just wants somebody who, you know, is like kind of understands, but it is also just sort of the shoulder to cry on and is sort of just there to make her feel better and everything. Um, So it's the first time he's kind of telling her, like telling her off for that. Um, you know, although that doesn't change the fact that he wants her to stay. So even after he's been honest, it doesn't really get the result that he wants. Um, yep. So, yeah, I, I gotta be honest. Spike's song isn't my favorite in this episode. Um, yeah, no, I, I'd agree with you there. And which is, I don't, it's kind of surprising. Yeah, well, I was going to say, like, because, like, like, James Marsters is a singer. Like, he's, he's, he plays music, like, even now, today, like, and he's been in bands and, um, you know, that kind of stuff. But, yeah, I just, Well, I I feel like Spike should be the, the easy character to do something really, like, funny and show-stopping with, and, um, Uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it is kind of the angsty thing, because, like, like, you nailed it, like, his, his thing is... Yeah, let, leave me alone, but come back, you know, right. <laughs> or leave me alone, but stay and, and okay, like, that's fine. Um, right. Which is a funny punchline, but yeah, maybe this song isn't quite as entertaining as it, as it could be. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, but yeah, I mean, pretty, pretty straightforward, though. Um, but yeah. On, on to Dawn and her lament. On to Dawn. On to Dawn's lament. A great, great Dawn joke. You know, does anybody even notice? Does anybody even, just as she's getting into right. the Dawn stuff that annoys all the people who hate Dawn of her self-centered whininess, you yeah. know, she gets interrupted, you know, by the minions who come in to take her away. Yeah. Um. While while she's alone in her home, yeah. right after she said, you know, a fifteen year old should be able to, right, you know, be in her locked home for right, half hour right. or whatever. Um, so yeah, that's a funny, 
that's a funny kind of little joke at her expense, I think. But um, I, I, I like, uh, you know, interesting that she asked for a dancing part. Um, that's very nutcracker, that that scene. You know, there's, it, it reminds me so much of in the nutcracker of Clara fighting the mice, you know? And it's all this kind of mm -hmm. dance fighting where like the dance is like, you're supposed to understand that it's a fight going on, but it's all like dancey moves and everything. And it's her kind of running around with all these different little, you know, creatures like pushing her this way and that way and everything. Um, you know, uh, I, I would be surprised if they didn't sort of intentionally, you know, construct it that way and everything. Sure. Um, but, um, you know, another way to have a little, theater staple there of like the dance fight and everything um so yeah and then i mean we kind of i don't know that there's too much to say about sweet's song and introduction we kind of talked about his you know his mo you know he's this dancing demon and he gets you to sing your your feelings and then sometimes people dance so much that they burst into flames and he sort of goes around bringing the fun and yeah. causing chaos and <laughs> although there's uh an invocational aspect to it sure so it's yes. not just a random him, attack yeah, yeah going someplace and deciding we're gonna do this you know whatever um yeah but yeah, like the, the idea is that he was called here for a purpose. Um, or if not a purpose, at least, you know, by someone. Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah. But yeah, we do get, we do get there. I, I found the, um, the lyric I had been looking for. I thought I did and now I lost it again. Uh, oh, so uh, Dawn asks, so you're like a good demon bringing the fun in. He says, all those melodies, they go on too long. Then that energy starts to come on way too strong. All those hearts lay open. That must sting. Plus, some customers just start combusting. That's the penalty when life is but a song. Um, which, you know, we get Buffy's song later. But yeah. Life is a song. Um, whether that's true or not. Uh, We'll talk about that. But um, yeah, did we mention um, before Don's lament, of course, is when Tara sort of figures out something's up with the flower that right. she had found under her pillow mm -hmm. and sort of, run, you know, makes an excuse to run out to the magic box. Um, mm -hmm. So just, yeah, uh, that's that's why Dawn is alone. Right, right. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we get, I mean, the the sweet you know contract or whatever um i don't i guess this is it's sort of the macguffin but i'm not sure what the macguffin is 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 the macguffin dawn then or is it the necklace or so, so something in there is is sort of the thing that drives the plot right like sure. it's the um sort of you know reason for all of this happening but yeah yeah um Meanwhile, in another part of Sunnydale, uh, we we go off to Giles and Buffy, 
doing training in in the back of the magic box and uh right. i love i like buffy saying she's worried about it becoming an 80s montage yeah like it's gonna turn into the karate kid or something right <laughs> like i mean you know. would it be that bad if it did I'm no bad. it would be perfectly appropriate um but it doesn't it'd probably be more fun than like regular kickboxing um but uh yeah, and um, yeah, and, and they talk about the Halloween incident, and oh, I thought you took care of that, and it's like okay, um, <laughs> that's sort of yeah the problem that which Giles of course doesn't confront in the moment, but then does start to sing about it, um, right? And kind so, of sings about what we talked about before of you know, he kind of comes to this conclusion that he's standing in her way. Like, is she capable of really growing up and, you know, standing on her own if he's there? Um, right. And maybe not, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, this is a song where Buffy doesn't hear him. Right. Uh, so <laughs> everything right. that I Which said I before, was, this yes. is the exception. <laughs> well, right. Which is all I, you know, I, I think you're right about the the Xander Anya song. But also I think my point stands that different songs can function in different yeah. ways. And it depends on the context and everything. So I I mean, this this is just me thinking it through a little bit. Well, okay. So actually, Whedon did say like one of the things that he tried to show, so you have like here in this, during this song, um, you have Giles moving around normal pace or whatever, but Buffy is actually in slow motion. In slow-mo, right. And yeah. so one of the things he said that he tried to do was to show by the different speeds of, of these, you know, two people doing things is to show sort of the distance that's mm. between them, which is, you know, not not the first time we noticed that sort of thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, we know that they're, they seem to be talking past each other um, yeah. about these things. And so, um, you know, Buffy sort of exerting herself and focusing on the training and stuff while Giles is sort of singing softly about all his concerns here. And so you can sort of maybe reason reason it that way that it's not that Giles is like inaudible like it's not just in his head mm -hmm. but it's that Buffy is so focused and you know uh not really listening to what he's saying mm -hmm. not for the first time <laughs> you right, know right. uh that that is the reason she doesn't hear him yeah there's that's not a canonical that's not as like as much of a like i i'm i think there's sufficient textual evidence of xander and anya hearing each other i sure. i that's just me interpreting though this song for why sure. buffy doesn't hear giles sure um sure. i think there's less textual evidence for that hmm. but Sure. Yeah. And I think, yeah, the having them at different speeds kind of conveys that, that they're, you know, on t 
two different wavelengths to some extent that they're kind of in the same space, but not really, you know, literally going at the same speed as each other. Um, so then you get the follow-up, the kind of reprise of both Giles. So like the two, these are the two, uh, kind of sad minor keyed, you know, section of, of the show and everything of Giles and Tara, um, you know, singing together about, uh, you know, their, their sadness and their disappointment and everything. And, you know, again, I've been noticing that Giles might not be staying, but now Tara is also singing about leaving, you know, like they're both saying, wish I could stay, which means that they think they can't. Um, yeah. And Tara's kind of turns into a breakup song. Like, you know, like she's discovered this betrayal and all of her stuff is about like, she even says at one point, doesn't she say like, we're done? Like, like that I can't basically, she can't trust Willow after this because the whole relationship might be manipulated for all she knows, um, you know, and the two of them kind of in concert with each other come to this conclusion of, of having to move on, um, which is sad. Sure. But it makes for pretty music. <laughs> that it does. Um, and again, featuring them, maybe the two best singers in the cast. So like, yeah. again, finding ways, yeah. story reasons, but finding excuses to feature their voices and yeah. stuff, um, yeah. which, you know, is good. No, definitely. Whedon says that, you know, that reprise there where they, where they come together is the treat of the episode for him that, yeah. you know, just hearing the two of them singing together. And, and, yeah. And, and yeah, and I mean, we've talked about, Anthony Head's singing before. Yes, so. yes. Uh, yeah. Um, all right. So then they all come together. Dawn's in trouble. Must be Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> um, which is definitely a quote I've seen. Yes. Around that's, on that's a fairly a, weekly basis. That's you a know. common quote. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, Giles. Oh, man, that was cold saying... Buffy's going alone, like, man, he just cuts her right off. Like, rip off that band-aid. There's no there's no gentle weaning off of the Giles support system. It is a yeah. cold turkey, you know? Um so that was yeah. that was surprising. Yeah. Um and harsh, I thought. Um so all her thing of what can't we face if we're together, well, they're not going in together, you know, Giles kind of decides now's the time, you know, she can handle it. She'll do her best. And he sends her off with, uh, with no backup musical or otherwise. <laughs> um, right. Uh, until halfway through the song. Until halfway through when the song. All when decide... they all kind of, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, no, I mean, there's, it, but it's not just Giles. So like, yes, Giles is cold, but, but you feel the dissension between each of the members, right? Like you get, mm -hmm. 
uh, Tara and Willow, like Willow's like, oh, maybe a spell and Tara like snaps at her and then right. tries to like hide it. Like that, this is back to like insecure Tara of, you know, trying to hide it and just saying like, she doesn't think it would work sort of mm-hmm. non-committally. And then you get Spike offering to help and go with it. And Buffy's like, oh, I thought, thought you wanted me to stay away. Right. And he sort of, you know, gives yeah. them to shove off. And then, um, like, Xander seems eager to help, but then, like, listens to Giles, which is mm-hmm. weird. Like, it's like the one time he doesn't go rushing in to help Buffy. Like, mm-hmm. ever, throughout the entire <laughs> series, you know what I mean? Like, I, that might not wholly be true. There might be other times. But you know what I mean? Like, this is, it does seem kind of odd, like, that Xander, of all people, doesn't at least go with her. Um, yeah. Or or at least try harder to go with her. Um, but yeah, like, sort of alone on their own, they each sort of, are like, wait a minute, maybe maybe this wasn't the best idea. Um, Spike, mm-hmm. back to his, you know, warm and cold. <laughs> you know, I hope she fries. I'm free if that bitch dies. I better help her out. Like, <laughs> and then, like, later, I, I, forget, I forget exactly. I didn't write it down, but it's something like, um, you know, I'll, like, I'll kill her first and then help her or something and, like that. Yeah, like, but then I'll, I'll help her and then I'll kill her. Like, yeah, you can't decide like which you'll do yeah. first. Um, and it's a really funny... Like, way he says it, too, of, like, like he's so angry, I'm free if she dies, I better help her. Like, the way his right. voice changes on a dime is very funny. Um, right. Um, yeah. And, yeah, and, and they all, you know, one by one and then together decide uh, uh, what they all knew in the beginning, which is that, you know, they're stronger together and... uh you know, even if she doesn't need their backup, she kind of does anyway. Like, you know, yeah. uh, that's sort of the point of, you know, the Slayer with the family and friends. Right, right, exactly. Um, uh, you know, and, and Buffy, kind of her song about Walk Through the Fire, like, again, wanting to want something, like, f- going after feeling something even if that's pain you know like okay at least if fire burns me at least i'll feel something um and that being better than the kind of numbness that she's been experiencing and everything sure um whedon says that the scene where they're all walking in the road and the fire trucks are coming in behind and he said he says that's like his favorite thing ever like just (laughs) that it was perfectly timed and he just, yeah. he just loves it. Like, he, yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe since 2001, 2002, when, when this Something's came out, like, it, yeah. like maybe he's done something better, but you know, at least so, by the time when he recorded the DVD commentary, you can see that's one of those things that it would be your favorite thing ever because they probably spent like 20 hours trying to make <laughs> it happen. So you're just so relieved yeah. that you got the shot that like, you know, yeah. Um, you know, it goes to a special place. Um, okay. So Buffy comes in for her big confrontation, quipping, uh, with, you know, with Sweet. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and all her stuff about, what if I kill you? Well, it won't help. 
you know, <laughs> this kind of, Hey, I've died twice. The confidence in her own invincibility, you know, it, she's even kind of bored with it. Like, yeah. you know, like even if I die, it's not necessarily the end. So do your worst. Like I've kind of been through yep. the worst that can happen to me. So what really else can you do at this point? Um, you know, which is a, you know, sensible way for her to feel. Um, but the others do come in. I don't know if you I know. use the word sensible, but well, sure. understandable at least. Understandable. Yeah. That's what I mean. Like logical, given what she's experienced. Right. Right. Um, for her state of mind, it makes sense. Um, so yeah, and then the others come in, giving her backup, which means like backup dancing and singing and everything. Um, <laughs> which just made and, me laugh. And odd that it's Anya and Tara. Sure. That Giles sends in. Right. It's not, not Willow and Xander, you know. Right. It's not the main Scoobies. Right. Or Spike, who's stronger, you know. And right. Right. Um, yeah. And, I mean, the, the big, again, in moments of honesty, you know, the most honest, the big reveal in the episode is her, her confession about that she, you know, I think I was in heaven mm. and y'all kind of screwed up with that one, you know, yeah. and you see the reactions, the, yeah. the devastation, especially on Willow. Oh yeah. Willow um, sort of backing away and yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so yeah. And, and this idea of life's a song, but, singing and dancing again is all you know fine but it doesn't mean anything if you don't have something to sing about like going through the motions of the song and dance if you're not actually mm -hmm. feeling the joy of that is is a hollow experience um like it only really connects with your audience if there's some emotion behind it you have to feel it and mean it and everything um you know so you know, I think that's Buffy kind of also confessing to the others what she's been feeling of feeling that disconnect with her life and the world around her. Mm. And, you know, and again, she doesn't feel it, but she wants to feel it. So it's her saying, give me something to feel about or to right. sing about. Um, like, I don't know that I have anything, but, you know. Right. Yeah. And there's uh, a very, there's a very desperate look. Like before you get into that final where she starts dancing all crazy and, mm -hmm. you know, smoking and stuff like, like there's a very desperate look on her face of, of give me something to sing about. Right. That, yeah. that there's, that she doesn't have it anymore. Right. Um, and then Spike stops her. Yeah. Right. Uh, and using, and so we're, you know, the same, the same, uh, dissonant tune that mm -hmm. we get Buffy singing about heaven you know he's he says it's this is this is life it's not a song it's not bliss it's not heaven it's just this it's living right um and that the only way to heal is to go on keep living um right and then you get Dawn sort of repeating back the words again to her 
mm-hmm. which we which we got in the season opener as well, mm-hmm. right? Of Dawn saying, you know, the hardest thing in this world is to live in it. Um, right. So now, you know, again, we've got Buffy's probably regretting that she ever said that to her sister. <laughs> no, everybody yeah. repeats it back at her um, <laughs> all the time. Throw that in my face again, why don't you? Yeah. Uh, um, but yeah, I mean... Yeah, well, and Spike again, despite Spike's frustration with with Buffy's way she's acting and everything, him being the one who gets it, who gets the closest to what she's been through and... Mm can uh, relate to it and articulate it back to her in a way that, that makes sense. And I mean, granted Spike already knew. So like, he's not surprised by the revelation, but like the others are all paralyzed at that point, just with, sure. With that reveal that, yeah. Yeah. You know, of what, of what they did. And uh, well, and also Spike didn't do it to her. (laughs) Like, sure. Like he wasn't part of it and, and refused to be, would have refused to be part of it had he known about it Um, and gets angry at them when he finds out. So, Mm -hmm. you know, for all those reasons and perhaps more, you know, Spike is maybe the only one who can actually do something at that point because he doesn't have to deal with sort of the crushing, you know, knowledge that Buffy drops on them. Um, Yeah. And then we get, uh, sweet sort of stepping up again and Willow sort of you know threatening he's like ooh I feel power and uh, about to take Dawn when it when Dawn insists that she didn't actually summon him do the summoning and so we learn that it was Xander yeah of all people so here's the thing and you tell you tell me how you feel about this. Uh-huh. I'm not entirely thrilled with that explanation. Uh-huh. I mean I don't know what it took to invoke the demon in the first place, but yeah. Xander isn't exactly the most magical of the team. Sure. So I mean unless it was so like I mean maybe it's just it's easy because he's right. a singing demon and, you know. Right. Chant some words. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like maybe it doesn't take a lot. Um, but also like, I do feel like there's a bit of a cop out there just mm. in that explanation because like he knew from the beginning and like, yeah, I can understand. I can understand him not wanting to say things, but also part of the whole songs is to reveal things Right. And so you would think, like, maybe in the I've Got a Theory song that, like, he might have, he, like, maybe he would be the one to say it was a dancing mm. demon instead of Giles or something like that. Like, Sure. I don't know. Anyway, I don't want to make a huge deal out of it because ultimately it's what ends the, yeah. you know, uh, immediate danger. Yeah. And so, so that's fine um we didn't said too like that he didn't want the demon to be someone who could be killed that like it was you know it's music he's like he's like this is this is musicals incarnate right like the, these are yeah. 
you know, you it doesn't it it's doesn't go villain, away. Yeah. You're not going to get yeah. rid of music. It's just that he sort of brings it on too yeah. strongly, and and you know, just like any good thing, like you can have too much of it. Yeah. Um, so. Right. It's not. It doesn't reflect well if we kill off the musical genre at the end of the <laughs> episode. Right. Um, yeah, and I. I I don't know that I hugely minded that it was Xander, but I don't feel like it narratively needed to be him. Like it could just as easily have been Don or anybody else who did it. So it's sort of like, well, yeah. we need it to be somebody. Um, and it's like, you know, I, I'm not, I'm neither wholly convinced nor totally bothered by the fact that it's Xander. Sure. Um, uh, you know, I mean, they kind of mentioned it's, part of his anxiety about his engagement, you know, of he's trying to magically force a happy ending, you know, of, mm. Oh, we'll have songs and dances and everything will be like birds chirping. But again, you know, that's the stereotype of the musical without getting into all the, you know, uh, darker elements that obviously go on in this episode and everything. So, yeah. Um, all right, we should wrap this baby up. So yeah, sweet, uh, you know, leaves tap dances back off to his hell dimension. Um, and then they all singing, start singing, you know, the, they're all kind of left awkwardly looking around like, oh gosh, now we know all these things yeah, about each other. The, the denouement, right? Like, the, yeah, yeah. Figuring out. Um, yeah so where do we where do we go from here uh we don't we don't know um that's you know left for another episode you know and the line about you know we go hand in hand but we walk alone in fear this kind of again allusion to the on the surface we are together and we try to abide by that and play pay lip service to it but we're also still stuck alone in our own separate fears and anxieties and mm. okay we're we've now openly acknowledged all these things but we have to actually deal with them um that hasn't really there's no real resolution yet um there's been like revelation but no resolution to any of these storylines um yeah. except in a way not full fully resolved but we certainly get an advancement um with the spike and buffy plot mm. and you know they end on the big like mgm musical you know like big passionate kiss at the end of the episode um yeah yeah is this so? This is Buffy's something to sing about. Um, well, you know she's gonna feel something. This is this is certainly, <laughs> you know, she's going after, you know, going after some desires and feelings that she hadn't, you know, uh, ever explored before. So there we go. And still, Marty Noxon, what's up? Marty Noxon gets in charge of the show, and suddenly. You know, she said she doesn't like Spike and Buffy, but here they are. Well, 
Except that this is a Joss Whedon written and directed episode. I don't sure. know, I don't know sure. that Marty had a lot to say about sure. what happened here. Sure. Um, but she has to handle the lead up and all of the aftermath. So we'll have to see how that sure. how progresses from here. Sure. No, she definitely had more involvement in the episodes leading up to. And, and yeah, like you said, after afterwards. I mean... Not liking something is different than allowing a thing to happen. <laughs> sure. No, and, and that's true. Like, all right, all we get is, you know, what happens. We don't have any idea yet of the implications or where where it goes sure. from there. Um, you know, is this, is this a happy moment? You know, I think it depends on how you look at it. Um, you so. know, uh, from whose perspective you're looking at it and what your perspective is, you know, on the relationship from the audience and everything. Um, right. So. Right. Anyway, and also, I mean, you just have to end a big musical number or a big musical show with, with a kiss, right? Like, you just have to. Sure. That's what that's what Whedon said anyway. So you just need to end it on a kiss, like the given the the nineteen fifties style, you know, yeah. opening yeah. and credits and all of that. Like, you know, that's the right within that context anyway. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and that the opening and the closing definitely go along with that. Like the opening credits and then the final sort of title card and everything yeah. are leaning into that kind of, you know, that period and that kind of triumphant, happy, you know, ostensibly happy ending. Right. So. Cool. Anyway, right. Well. Oh. I know. Long one. We did it. Sorry. Uh, it was good. <laughs> well. I'm okay. glad I finally got to see it. So we'll be back next week. We'll be talking about uh, some more BSG and figuring out what the heck's going on. Where are they going from here? And mm -hmm. uh, and we'll be back with some Angel. With uh episode directed by Skip Schoolnick, who is the namesake of our good demon Skip. Oh, interesting. Okay. <laughs> Not, not that it has anything to do with the character. Just noting that the episode is directed by him. Interesting. All right. See you then. Mm -hmm.